What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 43 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. We'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to elders past and present and also to acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with James Mannion and Kate McAllister. James was a science teacher for 12 years and in school leadership for eight. He has a master's in person-centred education and a PhD in learning to learn from the University of Cambridge. James now works as a programs leader at the University College of London's Institute of Education and is an associate of Oracy Cambridge. He's also a passionate advocate of practitioner inquiry as a basis for professional development and also looks into implementation science as a framework school improvement. James is also the first return guest on the ERRR after his initial appearance back in episode 7. Kate McAllister worked as a French teacher for 14 years and has over 10 years experience in school leadership roles. She was the initiator of the Learn to Learn curriculum about which we're speaking today and has gone on to work on some amazing projects since, such as a crowd-funded double-decker bus, which she installed solar panels on the roof of and took to work in refugee camps in Calais, providing much-needed education and support for people living in displacement. Since then, Kate has set up the Human Hive, a global community of organisations and individuals working together to create a more welcoming and inclusive world, and at the time of recording was just about to start yet another school, this time in the Dominican Republic. As I said, Kate is an absolute powerhouse. As mentioned, the topic of today's discussion is learning to learn. James and Kate ran an intensive learning to learn program for years 7, 8 and 9 students at a school in Brighton starting in 2005. And this program had massive impacts on student well-being, confidence and yes, examination scores too. The program closed the gap between higher and lower advantaged students. And the story of the program is one of the most inspiring stories that I've come across in education to date, which I'm sure comes across in the following podcast. James and Kate's story, along with tips, tricks, and sage advice, is coming out in the form of a book, Fear is the Mind Killer, later on this year. So keep your ears peeled for that, and if today's episode leaves you wanting more, then you can pre-order Fear is the Mind Killer from John Cat Educational for 35% off with the code FEAR35. And I'll give you that code again at the end of the podcast. And on the topic of books, this episode of the E2L podcast is once again brought to you by John Cat Educational. I'm not sure how long this special is going to last for, but I am pleased to say that John Cat is still offering their 30% off discount for their full range of education books with the code ERRR30 at checkout. And I'll remind you of that code at the episode's end also. So if you're keen to get your hands on a copy of Oliver Caviglioli's Dual Coding with Teachers, the subject of episode 42 of the podcast, or Tom Sherrington's Rosenshine's Principles in Action, Kate Jones's Retrieval Practice, Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson's What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, or any of Craig Barton's books, they are all there and ready for your reading pleasure, and all at very reasonable prices. As I'm sure you can tell, John Cat is pumping out a huge array of fantastic education books at the moment, so feel free to check out their range at johncatbookshop.com. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into episode 43 of the ERRR podcast with James Mannion and Kate McAllister.
James Mannion and Kate McAllister. Welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. Indeed. Now, one of the key themes within your book was one of the key ideas of the learning skills curriculum is gently, firmly and repeatedly nudging students out of their comfort zone so that they get used to facing and confronting their fears. Have I remembered that correctly? Yes, we have. Okay, so what I wanted to do at the start of this interview was just just completely go off the script that I've sent you both. But the reason why I wanted to do that is because um, I know that you both have a whole heap of tools to kind of help people to operate more effectively and efficiently and to potentially get into flow better. So I just wanted to start at the outset and ask Kate, because I know this is your bag more, do you have anything that you think we should do at the start of this interview to kind of get in the right frame of mind, to have a have a good bit of exploratory talk together? Well, now because you've caught me off guard, I've just uncrossed my legs and pressed my feet into the floor so that I can ground myself because the panic started to rise instantly that I realized you'd gone off script and you were going to ask me something I wasn't prepared for. So just by pressing my feet into the ground, I'm kind of earthing myself again. So that makes me feel much more embodied and much less panicked. I can already calm my nervous system back down by doing that. So that's that's what I've done. Wow, that's great. I've just done that as well and I'm feeling better. I knew you'd have something, Kate, so I just wanted to to really <laughs> test it out. Um, do you have anything to add to that, James? Um, my, my go-to was to grab a pen and to just write down the question in case I forgot it. <laughs> Maybe we'll call that uh, journaling or something like that, but both good strategies. I'm sorry to do that to you guys, but I just wanted to... Uh, yeah, you know, start start with something a little bit a little bit in line with the theme of the interview and the theme of your book, which is fear is the mind killer. All right, back on script. First question, and we'll go to Kate first. Kate, if you meet someone new and they say, "Hi, Kate, what is it that you do?" What's your answer? I never enjoy this question. So I usually just say that I train individuals and teams to be more reflective and therefore more effective at what they do. Every now and then somebody doesn't glaze over and asks for more information because teacher training, volunteer, corporate training doesn't sound very thrilling on paper. But in reality, I get to spend my time with really interesting human beings doing really interesting work. So school teachers, volunteers, people working in business who who want to do interesting things. So it doesn't sound interesting, but it's a job that I love. Sounds pretty interesting to me. Uh, that's great, Kate. Now, James, last time I had you on, I, I, I re-listened to our episode seven, it was. You were one of the first each I guess, but I listened to that again this morning. Your answer last time was, um, I'm doing my PhD and I'm trying to work out what to do afterwards. Um, so if someone meets you today a couple of years later um, and says, hi, James, what did you do? What's your answer today? So I guess the easy bit is that I work at the Institute of Education, which is part of UCL in London, for two days a week. And I work as a bespoke programs leader, which, again, like Kate, doesn't sound (laughs) thrilling on on the page. (laughs) But it involves running, essentially running professional development programs for teachers and groups of school leaders. It's within the school leadership center at the IOE. Um, and it's a brilliant place to work. It's really, really fascinating. Lots of creative, um, innovative, forward-thinking practice. We sort of straddle the world. So although I've 
got my PhD. I'm not really an academic. I'm sort of like in the school-facing part of the Institute of Education. So we've got one foot in either camp, but we try not to talk this sort of academies jargon that comes with the territory. So um, yeah, I work at the IOE. And then we also have this company, Rethinking Education, which is which does quite similar stuff, running programs for teachers and school leaders independently. And we specialize in a few areas in learning to learn, in practitioner inquiry, which is basically learning to learn for teachers, and implementation science. So that my latest obsession is sort of like how to implement change effectively. And also just really, we're writing at the moment, I'm currently writing three books, really, that, that fear is the mind killer is one, and then two others in each of those two other areas, one on practitioner inquiry and one on implementation science. So I'm really in the writing bunker at the moment. So lockdown has come at quite a, an opportune moment for me to just crack on with, um, with getting some words down. Indeed, both very much busy bees. I'm curious, what, and I'll put this to both of you again, what do you think should be the purpose of school-based education? I will say that I think the purpose of school-based education is to help children develop healthy relationships to themselves, to other people, and to learning so they can navigate their lives in ways that feel empowering and satisfying to them. Part of that is collecting qualifications, but a large part of that is also understanding how to function in a society made of other human beings. Fantastic. Thanks, Kate. She just nailed really quickly what I was going to say in much many in many more words. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with that. I, yeah, I think that you 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 hit it where you said that. I mean, there's, there's essentially there's a sort of there's a, a narrow version and a broad version, and even that the language immediately gets quite contentious, doesn't it? Because narrow people associate that with narrow-minded, and I don't think that that is it is narrow-minded. But they, you know, the narrow version would be that education is a process of you know learning subject knowledge and trying to pass exams. And that's that's really good, you know. Like that's a, they're really good things to do, and we should definitely continue to do that. But there is also this more expansive, broader sort of vision of education as a process of personal growth. The sort of thing that Kate was talking about of self actualization, you know, of, of helping children to find their feet, to find their voice, to develop a sense of identity, and to undertake this process of like becoming more fully themselves or growing into themselves and becoming a proactive as well as a reactive learner. I think it's something that I've been talking with my son a lot about during lockdown, that you know, he's in year nine, so he's just about to go into his GCSE years. And I was saying, you know, if you, if you go through the next couple of years and you, and you do what the teachers ask of you when, you when they ask you to do it, if you do this piece of homework because they've set it, that'll probably get you a good degree of the way. But if you really want to thrive in this environment, then you sort of need to be proactive as well and to attack it rather than just sort of doing what's expected of you. And then there's other, there, there are, I mean, there's loads of ways that people answer that question, aren't there? That there's, you know, that it's about preparing people for the world of work or creating critically engaged, you know, politically active, you know, citizens of the world and all of that stuff. And I think that what we talk about in this book, the, the learning skills curriculum, actually addresses all of these agendas. If you want your, your grades to go up, this can do that. If you want your kids to be more switched on and more questioning and you know better able to relate to other people, this can do that as well. And that's why I think that this approach is going to go from strength to strength in the years to come to whatever it is that you think education is for, this will do that. Cool. 
So the the book we're discussing today is is Fear is the Mind Killer. Um, and this is really, how did you refer to it before the interview, your grand statement? Def- somebody described it as our defining statement. And- yeah. Your defining statement. Um, this book really is for both of you a, a defining statement that brings together much of the work you've done over previous decade or so. Why do you think that this book um, on learning skills is important now? I don't think that the now thing is, I mean, it's always been important. We've been, we've been working towards this point and getting to this point for a really long time. Kate started on this journey 15 years ago. I joined the journey about 10 years ago. It took eight years to do the PhD study and it's taken a couple of years to write the book. I think that it's the message that we're talking about is perennial. I mean, I, I do think that there are, there are some things that people talk about 21st century skills a lot, don't they? And that phrase attracts a lot of flack, but it assumes that people didn't need to be critical or creative in like the 19th or 20th centuries. Um, but there are some unique features of today's world that make the current moment quite defining and different, aren't there? You know, the, just the the you know the advent of the internet, 24-hour rolling news, fake news, you know, the rise of sort of like populist politics covid the coming of ai like there's there's this we're living through this insane period of change i don't know if you've ever read any books by yuval noah harari yeah i'm i'm halfway through homo deus now and i really enjoyed sapiens as well okay yeah i like his latest one 21 lessons for the 21st century is amazing it's like gripping and terrifying and it sort of talks about this how we're on the verge of this seismic irreversible change as the worlds of biotechnology and computer technology start to merge and algorithms take over and so on. And so there is something that's really unique about this moment, and especially the rise of fake news and alternative facts and this, this you know, the, the, the just you know, deep fakes and so on. I think that teaching kids how to evaluate sources, how to think for themselves, how to not just swallow everything that appears at the top of a Google feed or in their social media feed, is going to be super important. And, and, and interestingly, that was one of the things that Daniel Willingham seems to have changed his mind on. He wrote his piece, Here's a 21st Century Skill and How to Teach It. And it was based on the research that Sam Weinberg was doing at Stanford about teaching kids how to evaluate the quality of sources and teaching them digital literacy and so on. So there are some things about this moment now that make this work quite urgent, I think. But it's not just a, it's not just you know fetishizing the twenty first century. Like these are perennial concerns. Did you want to add anything to that, Kate? No, I, well maybe just a little bit. Um, I suppose because what's coming at us from the future with all of the um, AI and technology is that it's more important than ever to understand what it means to be a human and to be a human who can learn and change direction and manage big things happening in their life without falling over. And the learning skills curriculum does that too. And I think that it just so happens that our story collides with that story. It wasn't deliberate. This started a little while ago, as James said, but it seems to have come at a good time. And well, speaking about stories, um, Kate, where where did this all really start for you? Um, I think it started for me as soon as I started teaching. When I I done my 
I'd got my qualifications, I'd started my NQT year, and most of my focus had been on teaching. How could Kate be a good teacher? And I was very diligent and I worked very hard at university. And then when I got to school, I started to take over my own classes and I noticed that I taught them the same way because I had planned those lessons to within an inch of their lives, but they were received very differently by different classes. And so I began to notice that even though we were all sharing the same experience together, we were all experiencing it in different ways. And it wasn't just about what I was doing as a teacher that impacted their learning. It was also how they were receiving that teaching or not receiving it that was making a difference. And so that started my, that piqued my curiosity, I suppose. And that's where it all began, is focusing much more on learning and how it happens and importantly, what's going on to stop it from happening. Because there was a, seemed to be a difference between the children who could not learn because they didn't have the foundational knowledge upon which to hang the new stuff that I was teaching them. And so I had to go back and put those foundations in. And that's kind of standard teaching stuff, right? You build schemas and you, you go back and do the foundations. But then there were also the children who would not learn. They wouldn't even try to learn. And that was something different. So I could use my teaching skills to help the ones who were struggling to make sense of what I was trying to explain, but I needed a different set of skills for the children who'd given up on themselves, who were resistant to what I was trying to teach them. Yeah, right. Very interesting. James, where did it all start for you? So my answer to that question is much more boring. In that I, sort of, I received an email from the head teacher saying, who wants to get involved in designing and teaching a year seven what it was initially described as a thinking thinking curriculum or thinking skills curriculum. And I replied to that email in the affirmative. I'd, I'd just finished my MA. I'd, I'd done an MA in person-centered education, which was the best professional development I'd ever had by, by a country mile. And I just had this taste for teacher research. The, 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 the process of, of investigating my own practice had been totally transformative and I was looking around for a topic for a PhD, and this just sort of happened. It was really weird. It happened in the same month that I sort of, you know, went back to school and was looking for a PhD, and this thing kicked off. And I, I knew immediately that this was just an unbelievable opportunity because we were given five lessons. We had this competitive selection process to decide who would join this team of teachers. So everyone was really enthusiastic, the people who were on this team. And we were given this just a crazy opportunity with five lessons a week with the whole of year seven in mixed ability classes. And Stuart, our head teacher, whose idea it was to kickstart this, just sort of was a big believer in distributed leadership. And he had worked with Kate previously and knew that she's, you know, amazing. And he, he just said, over to you. So we, it was really, we had this blank slate to do with what we wanted. And I immediately saw this as, a, as an unbelievable opportunity to do something really bold and different. And I wanted to capture it in the most thorough way possible. So, yeah, it was quite an exciting beginning, actually, contrary to my previous statement. 
<laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I think you sold yourself a bit short there, James. And I think, you know, your experience of your your masters really laid a strong foundation for you as well in the dialogic process. And also in the previous podcast, we don't have to rehash it now, but back in episode seven, people can have a listen to your experience as a typist recording the stories of people. Was it applying for parole or something like that? And the way that you notice this pattern in their behavior or in that, you know, people would be going along um, well in life and then they'd be hit by something and then their inability to cope with that sudden shock would send them in a downward spiral and that got you thinking, you know, what's the difference between people who get sent into a downward spiral through such an experience and the people who are resilient? So um, I think you do have a bit of a, you had, you had a bit more of a background <laughs> than you, you might have sold yourself a bit short there. <laughs> yes, I did indeed. Uh, yeah, you're right. Way way before I started teaching, I was thinking about that. And that work for, it was working for the probation service was was the initial sort of light bulb moment that went on above my head that, as you say, you know, like, why is it that some people are able to deal with life knocks and and just get up even stronger and other people just like, absolutely fall apart? And to what extent does school prepare people for that? And to what extent does school hinder people from being able to do that in some ways? So, yeah, I did. I, I thought about it for a really long time before I decided to become a teacher. Every, almost every, every time I thought about some sort of problem that I saw in the world, I just found myself returned to education's doorstep each time. Um, not that education causes the problems that we see necessarily, but that, but that um, you know, if we did education in a different way, we might see a very different world. Now, now the idea of helping people to become more resilient and the whole idea of learning to learn or as, as you two term it, learning skills, it's, it's built on a foundational assumption that we can actually teach people how to be more resilient, how to, how to learn better and things like that. And, and to some listeners and to some people, in the, especially in the edu Twitter sphere, this isn't the, the most convincing assertion or assumption. And in your book, you also do call it an assumption at the outset, at least, and you pro- provide supporting evidence for it that follows. So something, and in addition to that, something that inter- really interesting within this book that you do that people often don't do within books is you spend a significant amount of time dedicated to arguing the opposite point. To, to arguing and really going into depth about the, the evidence um, that people put up to suggest that, you know, you can't, things like you can't teach generic skills and things like that. So I thought it would be worthwhile as kind of starting there um, as we delve into the content. And maybe James, if you want to start us off, you know, put, it, put up some of the arguments against learning to learn. Yes. So that's that's thank you i will the, 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 there's essentially there's three arguments that we that we go into in the book that people have used to suggest that learning to learn might not be such a great idea one of them being knowledge is foundational and the, 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 the three arguments sort of interlink one of them is like this idea that knowledge is important or really it's foundational the second one is that children are novices and that impacts on the way that we should educate children and the third one is this idea that generic skills like the ability to think critically or creatively say that they don't really exist or, or if they to the extent that they do exist they're not really generic they're really quite domain specific and they don't transfer easily um, from one domain to another and in each of these arguments there's lots of really really interesting ideas um, and so, yeah, should we go through them in turn? So in the UK, I don't know what it was like in Australia, but in the UK, 
um, especially around the sort of the late 2000s, 2010, there was this big emphasis on personalization and skills. And even the Department for Education at the time was called the DFES, the Department for Education and Skills. Like, so the skills agenda was huge and it was really driving government policy and lots of the sort of the information that came down from government through the National College of School Leadership and so on was very skills focused. I was a science teacher and we talked about, you know, how science works and all of this. It was like a skills based approach to teaching science. And in the last 10 years or so, as we've had, uh, first of all, a coalition government and a conservative government, there's been this big swing the other way towards like a knowledge rich curriculum. Um, And I mean, I'm assuming that something similar is happening in Australia because I followed a little bit. I get the sense that there's still quite a lot of skills focus over there. What's it like over there? Yeah, we're usually a couple of years behind the UK is what I've noticed and what I've been told. So whatever happens to you guys, we can expect to follow in uh, in a few years. Okay, yeah. So the pendulum is swinging hard the other way in favor of a knowledge-rich curriculum and people are starting to think much more seriously about how to sequence knowledge, how to organize it and how to teach in such a way that knowledge is, is built up and retained over time. And it should also be mentioned that, that although the, you know it was a Labour government that was promoting this skills agenda and it's now a Conservative government that's promoting this knowledge-rich agenda, there's been something that's really interesting that's happened, which is that this, this, like, this shouldn't be seen as a party political or as, even as a, a left-right thing. You know, people like E.D. Hirsch, who's very influential in the knowledge movement, like describes himself as practically a socialist. I don't know if you've seen, there's a, there's a hashtag on Twitter, lefty trad, you know, so people are people are really sort of making very explicit that it doesn't mean that you're a right wing person if you're conservative about your views on education and pedagogy and so on. So there's a there's a number of ideas here about how knowledge is foundational. You know, E. D. Hirsch's work on cultural literacy, on thinking of, you know, knowledge is just that you need to be educated to a certain level just to be able to sort of to, to take part in the conversation, in the big conversation of humankind, as Oakshot called it. Uh, and in his book, The Knowledge Deficit, he says that, you know, it's, it's, it's a deficit of knowledge that is the main reason for all of the sort of inequality that we see in the education system and more widely. And then people often refer to the work of Daniel Willingham in his book, what's the book called? Why Don't Kids Like School? Why Don't Students Like School? Or something like that from about 10 years ago now. And in particular, there's this one quote from Willingham's book where he says, trying to teach students skills such as analysis or synthesis in the absence of factual knowledge is impossible. Research from cognitive science has shown that the sorts of skills teachers want for their students, such as the ability to analyze and to think critically, require extensive factual knowledge. The guiding principle of this chapter is factual knowledge must precede skill. So that was, that's been something that people have really grabbed a hold of. And that's happening at the grassroots level and also in terms of you know, the, the government and Ofsted. And there's been this huge reform of the curriculum, the exam system, the inspection framework. So it's like it's, people have really, really started to move in this direction of recognizing the importance of knowledge. And then there's this other idea about people have been have been known to say in the past that you can like why do we even need to teach knowledge these days because you can just look it up right every kid's got a smartphone you can just look it up but Ed Hirsch has written about this and says that it, it takes knowledge in order to be able to search for something effectively you need to be knowledgeable in order to search he he, was t- he talked about an example of a child who was just given a dictionary and he said. Um, a child written our family erodes 
regularly, meaning eats out. You know, and so like if you don't know enough about what you're searching up, then you can just make you rookie errors. I don't I don't get that mistake. How how does that relate to eating out? Oh, so erodes like so another word for erode. So eat so erode might mean eat out like a metal or something. Oh, okay. As in so, eat, yeah. eat, eat away at the the cliff face yes, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I get it now. I read it in your book and I didn't get it. Thanks oh, for okay. clarifying that for me. <laughs> Maybe I'll uh, I'll refine that. Um, and so, so you need to have knowledge in order to learn knowledge, right? And having knowledge stored in your long-term memory is a lot better than having it stored in your phone because it's instantly accessible. And so there, there are many sort of facets to this idea that knowledge is really foundationally important and that we should have stuff stored in our long-term memory, which brings us neatly to the second argument against learning to learn, which is about how children are novices. So do you want, do you want to go, do, we can do the counter-argument for each one as we go through, or we can do all three arguments and then and then counter them afterwards, which would you prefer? How did you do it in the book, James? I'm trying to remember. I think we did all three and then we counter it. <clears throat> you lay them all out yeah. and then you came back, yeah, didn't you? So let's uh let's I'm sure you did it in the book for that way for a reason, so let's stick with it now too. Okay. So the second argument that children are novices. So that's based on this the multi-model, what's it called? The multi-level model of the mind, the, the Atkinson and Schifrin model of the mind has been broken up into a working memory and a long-term memory and so on and it's a, their, their model is more complicated than that but the model that people most often refer to these days is that we've, we've essentially got working memory this sort of very limited mental space with with you know limited bit rate of sort of seven to ten bits of information that we can process and then you've got a long-term memory which has got this sort of like unlimited essentially an unlimited store of information and knowledge and understanding and beliefs and values it's, it's much more complicated than just a store of, of information like a you know a usb stick or whatever and then you've got uh, cognitive load theory which is built on this idea that says that this the, you know working memory can be overloaded and so we need to think carefully about how we teach kids but the limits of working memory only apply to novel information that if you've got information stored in your long-term memory that that, that can bypass the limitations of working memory and allowing freeing you up to think about other things and to manipulate mental objects, for example. I feel like I'm speaking to an expert here because I'm talking to somebody who's writing a book on cognitive load theory. But just in case there are any listeners who aren't familiar with this, the, the classic example would be like for somebody who's working through a maths puzzle that's like a multi-stage maths puzzle. And for part of that problem, they need to know the answer to seven times six. So it could be that they would have to like, get a calculator out and type it in, or they count it out on their fingers and they go six, 12, 18, whatever. But if you've done you if you've learned your times tables, you know, by rote and you just know that seven sixes are forty-two, then you don't have to use up mental space to do that calculation and you're therefore free to think about other parts of the problem, right? And so there's a strong argument there. And this connects with the idea that knowledge is foundational. Again, so storing information and knowledge in the long-term memory is literally like how we turn novices into experts. And so when we're dealing with novices, which almost by definition we are when we're talking about children in schools where much of what they're encountering, they're encountering for the first time, and um, that they need to have a knowledge-rich curriculum that's taught and sequenced by an expert who's able to control the flow of information very carefully so that they don't get too overwhelmed or overloaded. So that's the second idea, that children are novices, and that therefore, you know, in a sense, that's based on a characterization of learning to learn as something that's 
entirely unguided or that that people are suggesting that we should just have learning to learn and not have any <laughs> any taught lessons at all which you know nobody's really arguing for that except for peter gray <laughs> actually yeah that's not true yeah yeah, yeah that's right. people do. and ian cunningham as well who i used to work for and who's got a really interesting book out uh soon uh, on self-managed learning you're right there are some people who are arguing for that we're more sort of center ground james is and... more center ground than i am okay yeah <laughs> it's interesting I, I used to think i was a lot more <laughs> radical than i am it turns out so that's the second one. Cognitive load theory is a thing, basically, and children are novices, and we need to think about, about how we organize information with those ideas in mind. And then the third argument is this idea that generic skills can't be taught. And there's, there's essentially, there's two things. Generic skills can't be taught, and skills don't transfer. So to the first one of those, there's this paper by Tricot and Sweller that's often that's often cited that draws on the work of David Geary, the evolutionary psychologist, who talks about biologically primary and secondary adaptations, where he says that primary adaptations or primary knowledge, if you like, is things like learning to speak and listen, learning to recognize faces, learning simple problem-solving techniques and so on, and that we do many of these things quite automatically and that we learn them. Our, our, our brains are evolved to learn these things. We don't really need to teach them explicitly. And then you've got secondary adaptations, which includes things like reading and writing and essentially everything that we do in schools. And the argument here is that these generic things, you you don't need to teach them because people can sort of learn them automatically. Whereas things like reading and writing and, and, you know, learning about science and French and maths and so on, you know, that, that we need to treat these things differently. And, and he, uh, so John Sweller talks about like national, uh, so international literacy rates over time. So for example, like in the 1820s, only about 10% of the world could read and write. Following the invention of schools, you know, this pattern was swiftly reversed. Now, you know, it's almost like 90% of, of the planet is literate or numerate to some degree. And whereas, you know, one would assume at least that, you know, in the 1820s, people were very much capable of holding a a conversation of speaking and listening to the same sort of level that they are now. And so that's sort of the first part, if you like, this idea that generic skills, you know, we don't need to teach this stuff. And then the second part that skills don't transfer that skills are situated. So there was a paper that uh, Daisy Christodoulou cited recently in a debate. There's a paper written, it was called something like, would Steven Spielberg be able to coach the New York Yankees? And the paper argues, no, like Spielberg is obviously very creative, but he's creative within his domain and things don't transfer easily from one domain to another. Um, And so skills don't transfer and therefore learning to learn, this idea that we can teach children these generic learning skills there's no point in doing that because they don't transfer into other into other subject areas. So they're they're the sort of the three arguments, if you like, against. I don't know if I've done perfect justice to each of those. In the book, we go into a lot more detail, but you know, that, that's the general gist. Very thorough. Before we go into the counter arguments, I wanted to just directly ask: Is there anything within that that you actually fundamentally disagree with? No, I mean, as we go through the first two arguments. I don't really have any bones with at all. I just don't think that they're good arguments against learning to learn, as we'll see. The third one I would call into question, but we'll, we'll, we can get to that. Should we, should we go through them, through the counter arguments? Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to recap. So the three points were the importance of knowledge. So these are arguments that people have used against the attempt to teach skills or learning to learn or learning skills. First is 
knowledge is super important. And so if we focus on skills, we're taking attention away from knowledge and, you know, knowledge is foundational. Second is cognitive load theory exists. And because we're dealing with novices in schools, what we should be doing is using things like explicit instruction, delivering content and things like that. Uh, And the third one is this challenge that generic skills can't be taught. And if they can be taught, transfer is a big issue and they're generally domain specific. And so, I guess I want to just establish for listeners that as the learning skills proponents or as proponents of learning skills, you also agree with many of the core arguments that are used against learning skills, which I think is an interesting and important place to start from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really important conversation to be to be had here. Sorry, were you going to say something, Kate? I was just going to say that they're all efficiency <coughs> models. So if what you want to achieve is the highest number of students passing the highest number of exams at the highest grade possible, then you want to do that in the most effective and efficient way that you can. That makes perfect sense to me. I think why I have to bite my tongue when James is always reading these things out not to dive in is that that's not all that education is and can be. I understand the desire to be efficient. It makes life simpler. Human beings like efficiency. We're kind of guided towards it evolutionarily, but there's more to teaching and learning than that. Totally. I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, as a quite a goal-oriented person, this is a trap that I've fallen into my into myself. And especially in the the early years of my career, I've always valued having very clearly set goals, initially for myself as a student, you know, saying I want to get this mark or that mark on this course. And then later with, you know, my students and my classes, especially my year 12, saying I want to get this number of students above this grade and things like that. And I think that has necessarily driven me towards various pedagogical styles that are very efficient to achieving those ends, but perhaps not as efficient to achieving the other ends that are part of a rounded education. So I think that's a really important point you make, Kate. And, you know, a key question is whenever we're talking about what works in education is, you know, for what purpose? And that's what you've hit on the head there. So James, to the uh, the rebuttal. Okay. So knowledge is foundational. Absolutely. I think that it's a really important thing to recognize, but I don't think that it really works as an argument against learning to learn for three reasons, really. The first one is that it's not that the argument is wrong, it's that it's only half right, essentially. And I think that a good way to illustrate that is by looking at, you know, we talked about Daniel Willingham Willingham earlier, and people often really fixate on that quote where he says, you know, knowledge is foundational. But if you read his book, he also says that facts must be taught in the context of skills. He says things like, these these are quotes from that same chapter. We want our students to think, not simply to memorize, that that students need to acquire background knowledge in parallel with practicing critical thinking skills. And he's recently wrote a piece, I think it was something to do with New South Wales. He wrote a piece on how how to teach critical thinking skills. He talks about how thinking skills and knowledge are bound together He says, our goal is not simply to have students know a lot of stuff, it's to have them know stuff in service of being able to think effectively. And so his message is actually really quite clear that it's not just this sort of, it's not an either or thing. It's not like, I mean, people sometimes characterize the knowledge skills debate as knowledge versus skills, as though there's just like, there's one right answer. But the question is more interesting is like, how do they connect? 
to what extent can skills be characterized simply as procedural knowledge, as like knowing how to do something? Or is there something more to skills than that? And I would argue that there is something more to skills than simply knowing how to do something. It's like skills can be defined as being able to apply knowledge, either knowing how or knowing what declarative knowledge, being able to apply that knowledge in new and novel contexts or in interesting ways. Um, or it can just be being able to do something to a high standard, right? So it's like this idea of either taking know-how or know-what type knowledge and then practicing it and rehearsing it and being able to do it to a really high standard. So I think that skills, it's fair to say, are on a, are on a different level altogether. <clears throat> so that's the first thing, is that it's not this either-or problem, it's both. The second reason that knowledge being foundational isn't really an argument against learning to learn is that it's based on the assumption that learning to learn is somehow devoid of knowledge and this is just not the case you know like there's we teach declarative knowledge in learning to learn lessons you know we're talking about learning the vocabulary of oracy for example like the oracy skills framework where we talk about things like tone and grammar and metaphor and gesture or we teach them critical thinking skills. We talk about argumentation and assumptions and logical fallacies and so on. And so we we th there's content here as well. And then there's also procedural knowledge. You know, we, we there's lots of project-based learning in learning to learn, and they're learning project management techniques like gathering information, monitoring their progress, how to run a to-do list, and so on. So there's like know-how. And then there's a skills level as well. So there's like, you know, being able to use rhetorical devices with flair when you're delivering a speech to the class or being able to exploit an opportunity in a debate when you notice that your opponent's argument rests on a dodgy assumption and so on. And as we talked about last time in the podcast as well, that in learning to learn lessons, we run independent learning projects, which are library based, where the children can go on and learn an incredible wealth of domain knowledge that they wouldn't otherwise learn through a purely subject-based curriculum. And so it's not an argument against L2L because, you know, L2L is not, is not knowledge-free. If anything, it strengthens it. And that links into the third reason, which is that learning to learn, and especially as we conceive of it in terms of metacognition, demonstrably help kids to gain subject knowledge you know, there's that often cited quote from the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK, metacognition and self-regulation lead to high impacts for very low cost. And this is based on extensive evidence. And the learning skills study that we that we ran in, you know, over eight years at Seaview had exactly the same findings that the kids who went through this program had significantly, you know, higher outcomes in terms of subject learning, especially among kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so we could argue, you know, if you want to take knowledge seriously, and you need to seriously think about implementing a learning-to-learn curriculum. And just as a final point on this, there's something that just occurred to me uh, last night as I was thinking about this, which is so there's this quite a funny idea that like traditionalists would often say, we all agree that independent learning is the goal, right? We want kids to be able to be think free-thinking, critically-minded, and so on. The question is, how do you get there? They would say that we don't achieve independent learning just by letting the children learn independently that doesn't work. They say that a knowledge-rich curriculum is how you get there. But you could just as easily flip that argument on its head and say, we all want kids to become knowledgeable. That's the end goal. We want kids to be knowledgeable as well as to be independent. The question is, how do we get there? There's loads of evidence that teaching them in such a way as to develop metacognitive and self-regulatory processing makes their grades go up, i.e. it makes them more knowledgeable. So how we get there is by teaching them how to learn independently. 
which is an interesting idea, right? And it opens this, it's a paradoxical thing that which is right? Like they both, both of those things can't be right, can they? <laughs> and I think that the key to unlock it, I think I look like I've just blown your mind. I'm just trying to think if they both can be true or if they can't both be true. I think they're both true at different times. You know, well, like as you just said, within the learning skills curriculum, you have knowledge built into that, right? So for students to be able to, you know, have these oracy skills, you need to deliver the knowledge that enables them to have, like, build these talking skills. But then once they've built those talking skills, which are kind of learning skills, then they can use those talking skills to build further knowledge. So it's kind of a reciprocal relationship that bounces back and forth and you need to develop both in parallel, I think, in order to get to the goal, which is having the knowledge and having the metacognitive skills. Exactly right. I I started doing this when I was a modern foreign languages teacher. So there's four main skills that you have to cover in MFL lessons, uh, speaking, listening, reading and writing. But inside each of those four, there are myriad skills. So we figured out in the very beginning that we needed, first of all, to, to get students to be able to speak to each other and listen to one another effectively before they would be able to do it in another language and to be able to read for meaning and not just get stuck on the one word that they didn't understand in the text and then say, I can't do it and throw the book out the window. So this journey into skills that you need to very specifically build knowledge started way before I even did the first iteration of a learning skills curriculum. It was always, I've always felt that it was the latter that we needed to do, that the skills support the building of knowledge. And if you do it that way round, you get both quicker. And it always seemed to me to work better. But I've never tried it the other way round. And I know that there are educators who are very experienced of doing it the other way round. Fair enough. I think perhaps we're talk- I talk about this reciprocal relationship and how each is embedded within the other and they need to be developed in parallel. You know, even if we talk about like the skill of learning to talk and listen, like have a discussion with someone where we actually listen, well, that, you know, Neil Mercer's approach to that, which obviously you two ascribe to, is built around a knowledge of what makes an effective conversation, right? What are the shared ground rules that we have? in order to have an effective conversation. So that's knowledge at the heart of the skill, and then the skill is at the heart of building further knowledge. So, you know, and I I don't know if we can peel that back a little bit, (laughs) another layer and say, what's the skill that enables people to have build the knowledge of understanding what the ground rules are? I don't know if we can do that. It's not coming to me now. But yeah, it's interesting. Well, it goes goes deeper than that. (laughs) How deep do you want to go, man? It goes deeper than that. Like beneath the skills, there there are habits and dispositions and attitudes and beneath all of that there's there's this like emotional level which we could talk about maybe a bit later that you know this is fundamentally like your attitude towards learning is emotional right and that's partly why we call the book fear is the mind killer because that's the level if you really want to to get to to the bottom of this what was that quote um that's in the book the desmond tutu quote if you at some point you need to stop people pulling people out of the river, you need to figure out why they're falling in in the first place. If you really want to go upstream and figure out, you know, what's the source of this, I think that we can get down to the, you know, it gets down to some quite sort of deep level, deep level stuff. 
but and I mean to to come back to the paradox of like do we do we teach do we teach knowledge through skills or do we teach skills through knowledge? I think that in, to bring it back to learning to learn, it really depends on on what you understand by learning to learn. When people say we don't teach people how to learn independently by letting them learn independently, often I think that that's characterized in people's minds as just like unguided discovery learning that's just totally just sort of just anything goes. And like you say, there are some people who subscribe to that view, but we're not among them. We think about learning to learn as really quite an explicit process of teaching kids how to self-regulate, how to become more confident, more curious, more proactive, independent learners. And these things are teachable and they're, they're, they're learnable. Guy Claxton refers to it as helping them learn how to flounder intelligently which I think is a, a nice way of, of putting it. It's not just some free-for-all. And when you realize that independent learning is actually this quite explicit process of teaching kids how to regulate their own learning, how to set good learning goals, how to monitor their process, how to run a to-do list, how to organize a folder, you know, there's a whole range of stuff and, it, and it's simultaneously emotional and cognitive and metacognitive. And there's many aspects to it, which is why the learning skills curriculum is a complex intervention. This is not some, some one-off thing. We need to attack this complex problem with a complex solution. So just to address the other two arguments, the, the second one being that children are novices. Again, you know, this is not something that we would take issue with. Nobody's saying that we should do away with subjects or teachers. Or maybe there are some people who say that, but we're not among them. We're saying that learning to learn is something that should run alongside and be intertwined with a knowledge-rich curriculum. This is not an either-or thing. And it's interesting to think about an idea that Tom Sherrington talks about in his book, The Learning Rainforest, where he talks about mode A versus mode B teaching, where mode A is essentially teaching from the front of the room, delivering your content, giving feedback, and you know, essentially traditional type instruction. And mode B stuff he talks about as things like you know going off piste, throwing them in at the deep end, developing oracy skills, project-based learning, essentially learning to learn type stuff. And he says that he recommends a sort of a roughly 80 to 20 split of mode A to mode B teaching. But the problem with that is that it doesn't really work. There's this study done that where they looked at the conceptions of learning to learn among teachers, and they found that there's a there's a broad conception, which is the, the stuff that we talk about, about self-actualization and so on. And then there's a narrow conception of learning to learn, which is stuff about study skills. The majority of teachers just think of learning to learn in those narrow terms. And even then, they don't find time to address it within their lessons. And so what we're talking about is essentially outsourcing lots of that. By having a learning to learn team, you can outsource a lot of that mode B stuff to teachers who are really passionate about that stuff and who are really good at it. Because not all teachers are equally on board with that stuff. Not all teachers feel equally up to speed with it. Not all teachers feel like they're really into it. And that's fine. Like in schools, we need teachers who are really passionate about teaching their subject. But we also need teachers who are really passionate about teaching project-based learning and developing oracy skills and so on. And so I think it's more efficient that way to, to, have, that, to have those things developed by a, by a specialist team. And it's also a lot less confusing for the children who, rather than having these things taught by 10 different teachers, can just have them taught in, this, in these localized lessons very well. And the final point to make with regard to that second argument is that children are novices at self-regulated learning as well. And so we need to help them develop the skills of self-regulated learning and to be taught by experts in that domain. And so it's no different. So in the book, we argue, and we've got evidence to suggest that the best way to provide that time and space to develop these skills 
is to have timetabled lessons and to have aspects of learning to learn embedded through the curriculum so that the kids get the chance to practice these knowledge and skills and habits in the context of subject-based learning. And this stuff doesn't fly in the face of cognitive load theory at all. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Some of the most interesting work that's going on in the field of cognitive load theory is where it marries together with aspects of self-regulated learning theory and also in terms of collaboration. So this idea that when people are working in groups effectively, that's another way in which we can overcome the limitations of working memory, kind of like a mechanism of action for interthinking, if you like, which I think is a really exciting avenue of research for people to, to get into. And very briefly, just to, to touch upon that third argument, the idea that generic skills can't be taught and that they, uh, that they don't transfer, that's, that's the one that I would take the most issue with. I don't think that it's as clear cut as Tricot and Sweller make out in their 2014 paper. If you just look at, for example, just at speaking and listening, there is good evidence that speaking and listening skills are picked up in the family and in society. But it's also clear as anything to me that you, that you can also teach these things to a significant degree in schools, you know, there are some schools who take the teaching of speaking and listening really seriously, aren't they? At Eton, they recently spent 18 million pounds on developing a new debating chamber. And, you know, no surprise that, that, that there's lots of ex-Etonians who are very confident in public speaking. I'm not suggesting that that's the only reason for that. There's other things, there's money and influence and so on. But the fact that they take the teaching of, of oracy skills so seriously at schools like that, so that argument doesn't really stack up, I don't think. And with regard to transfer, the argument that skills don't transfer easily, in some sense, that's quite a sort of a mundane observation. The idea, the notion that like a car mechanic isn't automatically a gifted brain surgeon, like that's not really that interesting a thing to observe. But actually transfer can happen. And there's a brilliant quote in this paper by Anderson, working with Herb Simon and others. There's this fascinating quote where he says that a large body of research on transfer in psychology demonstrates that there can either be large amounts of transfer, modest transfer, no transfer at all, or negative transfer. And, so, and how much there is depends in reliable ways on whether the experimental situation and the relation of where you're transferring it to are similar or different. And it's all about how you manage that transfer, essentially. And so to throw your hands up and say transfer isn't possible, therefore there's no point in having taught lessons, is ridiculous. Like the whole idea of a school would fall apart if we don't think any of this stuff is going to transfer out beyond the school gates. Transfer can happen, but it just that you have to manage it carefully out of the classroom where learning skills is happening and transferring it into subject learning across the curriculum. And so that would be my rebuttal to those three arguments. If I were to summarize the rebuttal, I'd probably summarize it as yes and. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, and and actually, there's also then there's then the the other half of that chapter, if you like, having rebutted the, those three arguments. There's three, there's the, you have to have positive arguments for learning to learn, don't you? As they like Martin Luther King didn't say, "I have a nightmare," you know, like we have to have some sort of a positive vision for for why we should be doing this, rather than just rebutting arguments against it. And the three arguments that we talk about is. Number one, the field has evolved. Since it was last evaluated on a large scale, learning to learn has moved on. And I think that the learning skills curriculum is a really good example of how the field has moved on quite significantly. And so I think that it's time to, to give this another shot and to see if we can implement this and scale it up and replicate it and evaluate it across multiple schools. The second thing is that scaling up is hard to do. Some of the studies that people have, have pointed to that have been problematic with learning to learn in the past is that 
Now, when we're talking about the evidence earlier about metacognition and self-regulation being extensive, lots of that evidence is meta-analyses of quite small studies. And it's quite easy to make this stuff work in a small way when you've got a small bunch of enthusiastic teachers who are all really buying into it. But when you scale it up across a whole school, the benefits fall away. And the question then is, like, is that because the idea is bad or is it just because scaling up is really hard to do? And I would argue that there's a bit of both going on there, but the scaling up problem is really significant. But again, you know, I mentioned implementation science earlier. We've learned some really, really very practical, powerful, useful tools in the last 10 years or so from this emerging field of implementation science for how to scale things up in an effective way. So I think that we can make a much better go of that now. And the final argument is this idea that the death of learning to learn has been greatly exaggerated. You know, people who who sort of have said that this is bad education or like Tom Bennett wrote a book where he said this is a snake oil hoax. Like, like he was basing that on two of the four studies that had sort of mixed results. They didn't find a negative impact. They just had mixed results because they were, you know, they were evaluating a complicated thing over 30 or 40 schools and they found that the net effect was no change. And I think that that was partly because it wasn't implemented that well in those studies, partly because it was a product of its time. You know, there was quite a lot of flaky stuff happening in the, in the, in the 2000s around learning styles and multiple intelligences and all of these practices that have since been, been widely debunked and discredited. And, you know, the, 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 in, the, in the four learning to learn column, we've got this wealth of information. In the mixed findings column, we've got these four studies, which we, we talk about in depth in the book. And in the against column, we've got nothing. So overwhelmingly, we've got evidence in favor of learning to learn. So the death of learning to learn has been greatly exaggerated. But in terms of what's actually happening in schools, it has absolutely collapsed. We, we, we weren't aware of what was happening. You know, There wasn't any data on the extent to which learning to learn is happening in schools. So we, we did a Twitter poll a few months ago, and we just asked two questions. Number one, if it, for, of secondary school teachers, if you were teaching in the 2000s, did you teach in a school that was where learning to learn was a taught thing? And then the second one was, are you in a school now? And it was something like 60 or 70 percent of, of teachers used to. And now it's down to like 10 percent. So in t- the extent to which this is happening in schools, it absolutely has really, really, really massively reduced. And it's sort of the, it feels like the whole thing is swinging by a thread. Dear listeners, a quick reminder that those who have signed up as patrons receive a summary of my takeaways from each episode. And this month you'll get some of the key lessons that I took away from Fear Is The Mind Killer, a book that is yet to hit the shelves at the time of this podcast's release. I'll quickly summarize the arguments for and against learning skills approach that you've heard so far in the podcast and give you a sneak peek into some of my favorite strategies that James and Kate share in the book, giving you an idea of what's in store if you decide to take the plunge and get yourself a copy. In order to receive this month's ERRR summary, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up as a patron and support the show. And whether you donate as little as $1 per month or the average Patreon donation of $5, I'd be immensely grateful for your help in keeping the ERRR podcast sustainable for the long term. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. So in t- the extent to which this is happening in schools, it absolutely has really 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 massively reduced and it's sort of the, it feels like the whole thing is swinging by a thread and we're dangling at the end of that thread going hang on guys there's actually quite a lot of valuable stuff here maybe we should go back and revisit this and that's what we're trying to do with this book that's really interesting because you actually use that same metaphor 
a couple of years ago, James, you said you felt like learning to learn something by a thread and you're dangling at the end of it, calling out, trying to get people to add some other add some other threads. So that, I guess, sad that that's still the state of affairs, but also encouraging that you've put together this, this guidebook, if you will. It takes a really long time to write a book, it turns out. We're, it's just such a beast of a thing to do. It's really taken a long time. It's a, it's a culmination of a lot of thinking. So, yeah, but we're there now, nearly. We're nearly, 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 nearly there. It's two days away. As you've been saying for a couple of weeks now. For a couple, couple of years, of years. now. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years. Yeah, um, but, but just, just, to be, just to clarify that, it really is. And we're going to send it to the publisher in the next week or so. And the publishers, we're publishing it with John Cat, and they're, they're really fast at turning them around. We reckon that it should be out in the autumn term, hopefully this year. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, now one of the points you made there was that learning schools has moved along a lot over, we could say, the four generations of, of learning skills or learning to learn, as you put it in your book. I feel like maybe a place where we should have started this is podcast is me asking, what is learning skills or what are learning skills and what's the learning skills curriculum? And this is one I'll, I'll throw to you, Kate. So the learning skills curriculum is a combination of lots of different factors that support students and pupils to become effective learners. So we kind of broke apart all of the elements that go into effective learning and delivered them in a way that made students stronger at using them by themselves independently. So the learning skills curriculum is teaching children what it takes to be an effective learner. So how do you think from from right from the internal level, how do you feel about learning? How do you feel about yourself as a learner? What comes up for you when you're trying to learn? What comes up for you when it's easy? What comes up for you when it's difficult? So learning on a, on a feeling level and then being able to talk about learning and also learn through talking. So a lot of it was about dialogic learning, about um, having conversations around learning, teaching children how to talk to each other effectively. And to be able to recognize when they were learning effectively through talking and when they were just talking um, and to be able to make those judgment calls themselves. And then there's the kind of the top layer, the cognitive layer, the metacognitive layer. How do they think about learning? What are they actually doing? What are those invisible processes that can look like magic when you're in a classroom with a child who just seems to be able to learn easily? It's not magic. They're doing stuff under the surface. You just can't see it. So what is it that they're doing? Are they repeating things to themselves? Are they making mental lists? Are they referring back to previous experiences that are like this one? What is it that they're doing? All of those different cogs in that big wheel of learning. And so the learning skills curriculum is about taking the big thing that's learning, breaking it into small pieces and introducing them gradually over time and not necessarily in a program that builds. Sometimes it's piecemeal. So you're using the pieces as you go along. And when you discover that there's a piece missing or a piece that's not strong enough, you put time in there to understanding it better, to practicing it, to building it up so that you can then use it more independently yourself. And so over time, what you're creating are effective learners. And because each child starts in a different place, some of them are much more organized than others. Some are much more emotionally stable than others. Some have uh, more advanced 
cognitive skills. They can plan better. Everybody needs different pieces from within that learning skills curriculum to make the whole stronger. And so because we did it in this way, all of us together, learning different pieces, getting stronger at different pieces and using them in different ways, we could all grow in the same space. Does that make sense? It sure does, Kate. And what an incredibly rich response. I I guess there's a few things that I would pull out from that. One is the idea of breaking it down and really making visible to learners who are maybe struggling exactly what it is that stronger learners do. So that was the first thing. Maybe also really taking a strength-based approach. So you were talking about looking at things that students are already doing well, building on them and strengthening weaker areas. And the third thing that I heard from that was being really reflective, listening carefully, paying attention and being really adaptable to the needs and the changing needs, in fact, of the students. So that's kind of a big picture idea and a philosophical and flexible answer about what the learning skills curriculum is. But in the book, you really break that down for readers and you break it down into a few key areas and key pillars that the learning skills curriculum was built upon. And then you go into detail, explicit detail, about each of those pillars and how they were implemented. So I was wondering if, James, you wanted to build on what Kate's said there and colour in maybe some of the finer details and the structure of the learning skills curriculum. Okay, so we talk about these, it's a complex intervention, which is you know defined as an intervention with many moving parts, but it really boils down to these three sort of key concepts that interact, which are metacognition, self-regulation, and oracy. And if you like, those three sort of combined together to form this this meta concept of like self-regulated learning. So just to break them down individually. So self-regulation, we talk about as being a process of monitoring and controlling your feelings, first of all. And that could be physical feelings or it could be your emotions and also your behaviors. So that's quite a broad thing. Then we've got metacognition, which is almost like a mirror a mirror version of that, if you like, which is like an internalized thing, which is about cognition and thought. So it's monitoring and controlling your thought processes. And oracy, which I think has often been, it's been the missing link in education more widely. Speaking and listening hasn't been given the the recognition that it deserves. And likewise, within learning to learn itself, I don't think that people have previously realized just how vitally important speaking and listening are as a cornerstone of personal development, really. And we just define that simply as just developing really high-level speaking and listening skills across a range of contexts from small small group and paired conversations to whole class conversations to presentational talk to being able to take part in formal structured debates and philosophical inquiries and so on. So there's many aspects to oracy education. And then if you like, so self-regulated learning is where you pull all of these ideas together. And we, we talk about self-regulated learning is essentially the, the, uh, the application of metacognition and self-regulation and oracy to learning, because these things are all obviously wider than learning, thought processes, feelings, behaviors. That's, you know, huge. That could be your whole life. And so self-regulated learning is about saying, you know, this is just about harnessing these powerful processes and just like putting them to action with regard to to becoming a self-regulated learner. So they're the, they're the broad components, if you like. And then we, we sort of, we break these down in the book into smaller component parts. And so first of all, there, there's those three big ideas. And then there's also like structural elements, right? So in terms of the learning skills curriculum, it's, a, it's essentially a whole school approach to teaching and learning, which includes having a dedicated team of teachers that has these discrete taught lessons, but it also involves having embedded 
practices across the piece. And it also involves having strategies to transfer, because we were talking about transfer earlier. Transfer doesn't happen automatically, but that doesn't mean that it can't happen at all. It just means that you have to carefully manage it at both ends of the process, transfer out of the learning skills curriculum and transfer in to learning across the across the piece in subjects. And then within within RSC, we can break it down into, you know, you mentioned talk rules earlier. Um, we had this system for increasing the complexity of, of, of conversations that children were having. So at first, we would let them have conversations with a partner of their choosing at the start of the year. And then we would increase the number of people in the group. And then we would start to mix up the group so that by the end of the year, we made it a really explicit aim that the children would be able to have a really high level conversation with anybody that they find themselves in a group with, whether that's somebody that they previously have had problems with or that they may have never spoken to before or so on, or somebody who they're really good friends with and they might just talk about other stuff. We also taught them how to take part in formal structured debates and philosophy for children and so on. So that's, I mean, philosophy for children is a weird one because that sort of comes under, it comes under all of them really, but we, we put it in the book under oracy. In metacognition, we we did things like meditations and guided visualizations with the kids to help them just become a little bit more reflective and aware of what was going on within themselves. We used learning journals, which we could talk about later, if you like, as a way to help them to get to articulate the processes of their thinking. And essentially, one of the one of the really big ideas in in learning to learn is that it's a, it's a process of taking what are often invisible, the processes of learning are often invisible and sort of implicit and tacit. And it's a process of, of just like through constant dialogue and reflection, just teasing them out and shining a light on them and making them visible, making them tangible and therefore learnable. And so learning journals is one big way that we do that. Another thing with, is to do with having a whole school shared language of learning so that we can actually give the children the vocabulary with which to describe themselves as learners. And then in year nine, we had a formal course in, in thinking and reasoning skills. So we were giving them a, a, even more of a sort of formal understanding in how to take part in reasoned discussions. And then in terms of self-regulated learning, you know, probably the, the, the bulk of the lesson time, th three lessons out of the five that we had in the first year, were given over to project-based learning. So giving, giving the children, give, setting them really big challenges, something that would take a half term to complete, something that they feel like is beyond their reach currently, that's right at the edge of their comfort zone, that there's something that makes them feel a little sh shriek of panic when, they, when you first tell them that this is what you're going to be doing. And then you sort of, you, you judge how, how much or how little support to give them. You don't want them to flounder for six weeks and have nothing to show for it. But equally, you know, you don't want to, you know, throw them a lifeboat at the first sign of trouble. So you, you want to just give them in just enough sort of slack, if you like, to find out what they can and can't do for themselves. And we have this idea of curated autonomy so that we're not just giving them, it's not a total free for all, but we are giving them quite a lot of choice within sort of managed parameters and also through developing their organizational skills and just like that basic nuts and bolts stuff of like effective people run to-do lists and they know how to, you know, put sheets into a folder so that they're not upside down and falling out all over the place, which sounds trivial, but it's really not. Like kids really struggle with that stuff. And once they get on top of that, it's, it really, really helps them to organize their thoughts and their resources and their time and so on. So that's a real whistle-stop tour for over the, the, the sort of the big concepts, metacognition, self-regulation and oracy how we define those concepts and also how we sort of drill down to the sort of the micro behaviors that underpin each of those three ideas. Yeah, great. And I did want to pick up on one thing you said there, which was 
the emphasis that you place on oracy within the book and within the learning skills curriculum. And I noticed between some of the page proofs that you sent me originally and the new iteration, um, self-regulated learning was originally, if I recall correctly, you originally called it applying metacognition and self-regulation to learning. And you've recently added applying metacognition and self-regulation and oracy to learning. Do I remember that correctly? Well, do you know what, actually, uh, that's something that, uh, to be fair, I think that oracy comes under self-regulation of behaviours. I don't think that we need to necessarily add it into that definition. So I would correct that. I think that if we just to keep it simple, I think that self-regulated learning is the application of metacognition and self-regulation to learning. And I think that oracy comes under self-regulation. Of which oracy is a part. Okay, interesting. But I mean, what I wanted to say there was, I couldn't agree more on the role of speech and talk in learning. And something I've been delving into really quite deeply recently is the idea of self-explanation and looking back at some really fascinating research from Chi back in 1989 and then Alexander Renkel in 1997. In both of these studies, what they basically did was, it's quite organic research. They got a bunch of learners together and then they got them to learn something. In Chi's study, it was a humongous study where they got this group of students to learn over an extended period of time this physics and they didn't instruct them. They kind of gave them resources to learn and things like that and then they looked at the learning outcomes and then they looked at what it was that students did differently along that learning journey and they basically worked out they drilled it down to this idea of self-explanation the students who could learn effectively were the ones who could talk to themselves and have an internal dialogue about what they were seeing what they were focusing on when they understood when they didn't understand and this was the defining difference between the successful learners and the unsuccessful learners alexander renkel again in 1997 did exactly the same thing and in this case he found that approximately one third of the students could effectively do this and two thirds couldn't lo and behold the one third of students who could do it were the ones who were the successful learners and they were principle-based self-explainers or anticipatory self-explainers and the question then becomes, you know, how does a student work out or develop the ability to have an internal, effective internal dialogue and be able to self-explain to themselves? And the answer is the same way anyone learns to do anything by seeing it modeled in their environment and then internalizing those processes, right? So to me, the inclusion and the emphasis upon oracy within your work is incredibly important and I'm very grateful that it's there. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm loving this research that you sent in me a week or so ago. This, this self-explanation, I think, goes a really, really long way to shining a light on what's going on. Kate often talks about, you know, like, what's that kid doing? The kid who who's, sits there in an exam and they just immediately start writing and writing and writing. And the other kid's sitting next to them and they're panicking and they're like, what are they doing? You know, that's what's going on inside there, right? Like, they're, they're doing self-explanation. They've got some sort of a process for translating what they're seeing into their own language to saying, oh, I can do this. This is a bit like that. They make metaphors. They make links. That's what's going on under the hood, man. 100%. Did you want to add something, Kate? No, no. That's that's what learning skills was all about, is, is teaching kids how to look under everyone else's hood to find out what they're doing that's working so that they can copy, right, and internalize them for themselves. There's this strange... My daughter said it to me the other day. No, I can't do that. It's copying. It's cheating. I was like, it's not cheating to copy somebody else who's more effective than you. Like you're learning from them. That's learning. It's not cheating. So it's this strange concept that we have that if we haven't figured it out all by ourselves in the dark, it's not ours. We don't have ownership over it. And so 
part of learning skills is busting that apart and saying, no, 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 it's all out there. You cherry pick the best bits of everything that's out there that's going to work for you. And you become a self-experimenter as well as a self-explainer. Okay, that works for that kid. I've tried it. It's not working for me. I'm going to try something else. And just to keep, keep, keep doing that until you have a toolkit that you can trust, right? So you have your trusty tools that you use in every situation, and then you've got the extra ones around the outside. That's how you grow as a learner. You keep trying new things and seeing, trying them until they feel comfortable, until you feel confident to use those as well. So learning skills gave us the space and the time to play around in that space, to try things on for size and to find what fit. Fantastic. Well, that's a good segue. We might go back now to the start and give people a bit more of a concrete idea of what exactly this looked like. Because, I mean, if a school or a group of teachers listening wants to take on a project like this, it's probably quite likely that they'll end up in a similar position to what the two of you and the rest of the team were, you know, 10 years ago, whenever this started. And, you know, that is, you've been given some time allocation, you've been told to teach the kids to learn how to learn. And, you know, <laughs> and you've got to work out what to do. So maybe you can take us back to that, maybe that first meeting or the fir- those first couple of meetings, help us understand how you decided what to do and then sketch out the program. You know, we've, we've been talking for quite a while, so we can't go, we don't want to talk for too long about this. Um, and I want to get into the, the nitty gritty of w- what you recommend now. But can you take us back there and, and give us a bit of an explanation of where things started out? Okay. So when we first started learning skills, we had five, teachers. And what I wanted the team to be was a model of what the students were too. So the way that we put the team together was everybody brought their particular expertise and skill set and background to the mix. And we all learned from one another. So we each had our own particular strengths and expertise. And that's what we led with. So because there was no content that was pre-decided that we had to cover, we decided as educators what our specialist subject was, what we were most passionate about and what we felt would be the most beneficial for the learners to be covering, what would give us the best opportunity to get them really engaged with learning, like a vehicle, if you like, for developing the skills. So what would the knowledge be and what would the skills be that went alongside that? And so we divided up the year into half terms and we each took responsibility for planning one half term or introducing a topic that we were the expert in. And so on the ground, if you like, what it looked like in the meetings was us having lots and lots of very animated conversations about what we thought our students needed. Because what often happens is we make assumptions about what all students need, what all pupils need, and we build from there. I mean, I had come from a different school James had come from another school previously, and we both had very different experiences of what the students were like in our other schools. So we had to build a learning skills curriculum that was going to be supporting the needs of the learners in front of us. So we had lots of conversations about what our pupils were like and what we thought that they needed. So once we'd kind of done that needs analysis, we were then talking about what we thought would be the right interventions, if you like. What did they need to be developing? And so we would have lots of conversations. I think we should do this. No, I think we should do that. Well, what about if we all do this? And gradually, we kind of 
we went through this process that I now realized was an actual research site. We were looking at what we needed to do. We were reading around and talking around what interventions we might implement. Then we were choosing the way that we were going to do them. And then we were reflecting on whether or not they'd had the impact we wanted them to have. And so that's how we built the curriculum. James came with uh, Philosophy for Children, which I, I wasn't aware of before he brought it in. And he said, I think this is going to be exactly what we need to get our students talking, to get them engaging, to get them really thinking. And the evidence was incredibly strong for why we should implement that as part of the program. And the rest of the team agreed and James taught us how to do it. And we implemented that. I had much more experience with doing project-based work. So it was me who led on projects and how we could put them together to give the students the space that they needed to make mistakes and to develop those skills. That's great. And I think, you know, what you said at the very start there is incredibly powerful. And that is you wanted the teachers to be a model of the learners that you were trying to um, help your students to become. And, you know, when we actually look at what's happened through that and through taking that approach is you yourselves have become learners who have taken this project so much further than you would have if you had just been told to do a learning skills curriculum and you'd bought a book or a set of books and you'd implemented that and, you know, then something went wrong and you went, oh, that's okay, it doesn't really matter or whatever. You've actually, this has become your lives because you took that learning journey so seriously um, and you've continued to build on it over and over again. And that's exactly what you were trying to build in your students, you know, students who took the initiative to learn and got excited about their learning projects and then took it to the nth degree because they were those, they were self-motivated. So, to, to me, that's a key ingredient. And, it, and I listen to anyone who's keen to take on this kind of project to recognize that. Um, and I'm, you know, trying to reinforce it for myself because I think that is one of the, really the linchpin of what was required for this project to become a success. I don't know if, 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 you, if I've interpreted that correctly, but that, that's what I heard there. I think absolutely. It's something that Kate has talked about for a long time is that, you know, like we, we set, it's a very top down organizations, aren't they? Like we were saying earlier, we set targets for kids in schools because it's efficient, it's an efficient use of time, but they can't learn to self regulate in that environment. And we can't teach them how to self regulate unless we're doing it ourselves. And with that, that happens at a number of levels. The school leadership, the school itself needs to regulate and to take its own pulse and to respond to what's going on. At the level of the classroom teacher, we need to be modeling those skills and modeling what it looks like when you don't know what to do. You know, I remember when I was when I was learning to teach and as a science teacher, and they would say things like, oh, if a, if a kid asks you a question and you don't know the answer, Here's, here's a line you can use to say, oh, like, look that up for homework or what a brilliant thing. And they were like, don't let the mask slip for a minute. And it's just like this crazy idea that we're somehow perfect and they're actually modeling and just say, do you know what? I don't know what that, I don't know the answer. How might we find that out? Like, how might we find that out together? Or just model it to them and say, I'll get back to you in, a, in, like, in, in the next lesson. I'll go and find that out and I'll tell you how I found it out. That's a really good opportunity to lift the hood on how learning happens. And I think that that's absolutely what we should be modeling. So I totally agree. We have to model this in order for them to, to buy into it and for it to be in any way authentic. Fantastic. I'm going to, we're going to come back and I want to, um, 
eventually I want us to talk in a bit, de- bit of detail about one strategy that fits in under each of the categories of um, metacognition, self-regulation and oracy. But before we do that, I thought it might be worthwhile exploring the effects of this program. So, you know, was it successful? Did you help students become better learners? How do you know if they became better learners? Who's keen to take this one on? In the beginning, we could see quite quickly. So I was in a very interesting position of teaching, I think, nearly only year seven. And I taught them French, Spanish, PE and English, I think, at the, in the beginning. So some poor children had me <laughs> like for half their timetable. But what I got to see was the difference in the rate of progress that they could make in subject areas. So very quickly, I could see that the independence that they were developing in learning skills was being reflected in their modern foreign language lesson or in their PE lesson or in their English lesson. And so we could see the difference in kind of concrete measures. So behaviorally, we could look at the rewards and sanctions data to see that children were behaving better around the school. They seemed to be more settled. And we could also see in mark books that they were making better progress. So even on a small level, on a classroom level, you could see the difference quite quickly. And then over time, we were able to collect more data of bigger things. And James will be able to tell you more about the processes that he used for that. But we were able to see quite quickly that there was a positive impact which was very reassuring because in the beginning, you know, you're taking a big risk doing something like this. You have to trust. There's an element of thinking, okay, I'm going to jump and just hope that I grow wings on the way down. So it was very reassuring to see um, that we were having a positive impact. Totally. And uh, to emphasize a point there as well is I believe you guys were put under special measures just before you started this program, right? So Ofsted, the, um, I don't know what the board's, what they're called, the teacher examination, school examination board in the in the UK had said, you know, if this school doesn't turn around their results, then, you know, we might close you down or something bad's going to happen. And your principal at that, you know, had the had the tenacity to to say, oh, you know, even in, in the face of this, we're going to take this big risk. So uh, very brave. James? Yeah, we had inspectors coming in all the time. Oh, wow. Scary stuff. James, did you want to tell us about the the kind of results of your eight-year analysis? Yeah. So so essentially, so it was eight years because we followed four cohorts of children through from year seven through to year 11. There's one control cohort and then three cohorts who received learning skills. And so we mentioned earlier that they had five lessons a week with the whole of year seven. And then that, but that was only the start. So by the end of year seven, as Kate said, the signs were already there that, that we were seeing in the data, in the behavior data, attitudes to learning, and the progress data that this was moving in the right direction. And we went for a meeting with the other heads of department and the senior team to say, like, can we expand this curriculum time into year eight? Because we really think that there's some value here. And we were expecting to meet some quite fierce resistance. And actually, we were pushing at an open door because they also could see that these kids were different. And I could share with you some, you know, some excerpts from an interview we did with a teacher that, you know, they, they were saying that the difference between these kids and the kids who came before was just like night and day. Um, and so, so the curriculum time, the timetable lessons expanded into year eight. And then a year later, they expanded again into year nine. So over, over three years, that first cohort of, of students had over 400 lessons of learning skills over a three-year period. 
So the first, we did two essentially big analyses for my PhD study. One was like, how were they doing at the end of year nine compared with the control cohort, which was the, the cohort before them, who were very similar at entry to the school, and then again at year 11. So after year nine, after three years, we saw that there was significant gains in subject learning across the curriculum. And in particular, the gap was closing. So this was especially beneficial for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. So in the control cohort, the gap at the end of at the end of year nine was 25% between disadvantaged pupils and their peers in the, the, the proportion of kids either hitting or exceeding their target grades. And in the learning to learn cohort, that gap was just 2%. So we almost eradicated the gap over three years. But we weren't that sure about the quality of that data because it was at the end of year nine. And so this was based on teacher assessments and teacher assessments are notoriously, you know, sort of like questions around validity and reliability and so on. But it was really promising data. And so then the GCSE analysis two years later was almost exactly the same pattern of results. We saw a significant mm -hmm. increase. The, the, that first cohort got the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some margin. It went up by about 10 or 11% overall from the, from the previous year, which was already a record-breaking year. And in particular, again, there was this closing of the pupil premium gap. So the increase for pupil premium students was 23%. I'm just going to stop you for a second. And there's two terms you've used. One is GCSE for our international listeners. Can you translate what that means? And also pupil premium. Thank you. Yeah. So, so GCSE are the, the first big sort of set of standardized tests that they have at age 16 at the end of year 11. And pupil premium, the pupil premium is a, is a, a policy that was brought in about eight years ago now to give extra funding to money. So the pupil premium is money that's given to schools to target children who are disadvantaged and children are identified as being pupil premium if they have eligible for free school meals or if they have ever been eligible for free school meals in the previous six years. And there are a few other categories, children in care, looked after children, uh, the children of people who work in the armed services and so on, but it's mainly children you know, who are eligible for free school meals. And that's why it's quite a crude measure of disadvantage, but it's it's widely used. Okay. And so even, even though these learning skills stopped at the end of year nine, you still saw these results carry on until the end, at least until the end of year 11, you're saying? Yeah. So yeah. so again, in year 11, the, the, the gap at the end of year 11 in the control cohort, the disadvantage gap was around 25%, 26%, which is about average because the gap gets wider as the kids get older. And in the learning to learn cohort, the gap was eight percent. So it was there was a close. We closed the gap by about sixty over sixty five percent from one cohort to the next, which was amazing, really. But that was just the headline figures. We also wanted to look at you know we we took a whole range of qualitative results because as as we talked about in the last the last time I was on your podcast, it's a really bold claim to make to say that you know that learning skills is is in some way responsible for these hugely you know uh, significant gains in in outcomes across the piece you know it's a really bold claim to make and we have to you know strong claims require strong evidence and so we we go into quite a lot of detail in the book about arguing the case for causality like to what extent can we say that these gains were due to the learning skills or at least partly due to the learning skills curriculum and so we looked at we interviewed teachers uh, learning skills teachers only one teacher we managed to interview from across the school, which was, if I went back, I would have tried a lot harder to do more of that 
We've got one teacher from from an, another subject area to, to be interviewed. We interviewed lots of the students and asked them. We looked at what was going on in their books. We looked at what they were writing in their learning journals. And consistently, we saw this pattern where they were able to say, yes, we think that, that learning skills helped us to learn better. And they were able to say how this happened and how the skills that they that they learned, the lessons that they learned within learning skills transferred and how it, and, and there's a number of mechanisms for that transfer that we could identify. And so I think that we can make a pretty good case that learning skills was at least partly responsible for these gains that we saw. Powerful stuff. Was it just the GCSE results or did you have A-level results as well? I'm trying to trying to remember. No, we just went to GCSE because they um there was a sixth form attached to that to that college, but it's a very small sixth form and the kids scattered to the winds at that point. So we only we only went as far as GCSE. Um, and again, you know, when we do the when we do this in future, I want to make much more of an effort to to follow up kids for, to 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 look at long term outcomes. You know, after they leave school, um, I think that that's going to be really important in the future. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for sure because a real lack of evidence. Um, well, I mean, how do schools get measured? You know, they get measured by in a lot of ways by the results that their their leavers get or the the marks they get, but we really don't follow up beyond that. I mean, I know at our school, we know what university offers they get, but we don't know how many of the kids drop out or struggle or, you know, and <laughs> it's 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 very limited measure of su- the success of an education. So if, if you do do that, I think that would be incredibly powerful. Let's have a look at some examples and maybe maybe three concrete examples, one from each area, one from each of the three pillars of the learning skills approach. And maybe we could start with oracy. So what's a concrete example of one of the oracy interventions that you did? Maybe a good one, one that I was particularly excited about out of the book was the um, collaboration and complexity kind of approach where you progressively got students to more and more confident in having conversations. Do you want to outline how that went and how you built that up just so listeners can get an idea of really how the structured way in which you planned and supported students to develop these skills um, in such a way that they were able to have these increased results and um, increased skills. Yeah, I'm happy to pick that one up if you like. So one thing that people often find, like kids are put into seating plans in schools, aren't they? And they're often put into seating plans with the purpose of making sure that they don't sit with their friends, right? So that they don't talk off task. And we often have like boy, girl, boy, girl seating plans and so on. And if you talk to kids and you ask them, you know, what's it like when the teacher says, you know, like talk to your table partner, like there are, there are often many reasons why that conversation might not go well. Like if they don't know that kid or if they're a little bit in awe of them because one of them's, you know, more popular than the other or one of them is, you know, more confident than the other or is, you know, we've got higher prior attainment or whatever. Or maybe one of them used to bully the other one when they were back in primary school or maybe they, they, they might slightly fancy them or something, right? There's, there's a whole range of, of reasons why it might be hard for, for the, the micro politics of the classroom, if you like, that's often invisible to teachers but it's all that the kids can see so there's a whole range of reasons why those conversations might not go very well and so we started at the start of the year so the first bit of the puzzle if you like is to teach kids how to talk in an exploratory way and we talked about this quite a lot in the initial podcast so we probably don't need to go into that in great detail but it's essentially about using talk rules to govern how to have a good conversation things like take it in turns to speak listen intently to your partner, give reasons for your thinking, try to work towards agreement and so on. So you go through a process of coming up with a set of talk rules that govern how, how what good conversations look like. 
Um, and we have like that written down. They might have a copy on each desk or a big copy on the board, on the wall that the kids have all signed up to and so on. And so in the first half term, we would say like, so sitting with a partner of your choosing so that they don't have all of that micro-political you know, stuff that gets in the way, just like pick somebody who you think you'll be able to have a good conversation with and we'll learn how to have those sort of exploratory conversations just in a pair of your choosing. And then in the following half term, we would introduce a third person and that already introduces quite a lot of complexity because like when you just got a pair you just got a b right there's one relationship when you've got three people there's three relationships isn't there there's like a a b a c and b c and so that already increases the complexity by a factor of three and so just adding one person into a conversation can really you know it starts to ruffle some feathers and it makes things more complex but again, they would work through that and they would learn how to take turns and how to bite their tongue and so on and so on. And then we'd introduce a fourth person the following turn, again, letting them choose who they work with at first. And then we would repeat that cycle in the second half of the year, but for where the teacher gets to choose who the kids are sitting with and working with. And we're not avoiding any particular combinations of groups. And again, we would just make it really explicit that by the end of this year, you'll be able to have a really high-level exploratory conversation with anybody that you find yourself in a group with. And the children wrote about this quite a lot in their learning journals and in their interviews, they mentioned it and they really appreciated it. They appreciated the fact that they were required and consistently nudged and encouraged to venture out of the comfort, the apparent safety of their sort of immediate friendship groups and to have those conversations with other kids. And they had really incredible um, relationships that, that flourished between the children from different from different groups, from different backgrounds, with different um, you know, styles of, of, of being in classrooms and so on. So that was what that was about. And they, they really appreciated it. That's great. And I, I, one thing that really strikes me about that is the length of time that you dedicated to actually building this. You know, then you were saying by the end of the year, you are going to be able to have these conversations. And how often do we actually dedicate that amount of time to get allowing students to speak with each other and learn to speak with each other in these ways? And I can see, you know, I mean, I look at my year 12s and some of them are afraid to ask that person or that person a question when they're struggling. But imagine if everyone felt super comfortable with everyone in the classroom, you could say, oh, yeah, you know, the question about induction, James knows about induction, go and ask James. And they're like, oh, sure, I'll go ask James. Like that would just be yeah. so powerful. How many, how many hours per week or how much time per week were you dedicating to these type of activity? So essentially, that the five lessons a week, we had roughly, it would change a little bit, but roughly there was three lessons a week for project-based learning, one lesson a week for philosophical inquiry, and then it, we would alternate, so once a fortnight, so we would have an oracy-based lesson once a fortnight, and, and then the other, the other one would be the learning journal, where we'd have a meditation, a short sort of meditation or a guided visualization, followed by like silent writing in their learning journal. So roughly speaking, it was sort of like every other week. But there was more to it than that. Like we would often have like little, you know, you have paired discussions all the time in the classroom, don't you? So it wasn't only done in these formal oracy lessons. That was quite embedded throughout, you know, lots of what we did. That's great. And I'll point out to listeners that, you know, within the book, you've got, I think it's like 137 pages dedicated to these practical implementation of these strategies and what we've just spoken about their collaboration and complexity is one of four RSC strategies within the book. We might move into metacognition 
now within the book, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six metacognition strategies that you detail in a lot of detail within the book. And one that I'd love to talk about now is learning journals because you've mentioned that quite a bit. So could could one of you speak a little bit about what the learning journals were and, and how you embedded them within the learning skills curriculum? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to pick that one up as well because that was something that we did. So Kate went off on maternity when we were in the second or third year of the program, which was when the learning journals really, really, really started to bed they in. They kind of they evolved over time, didn't they? So in the beginning, the learning journals were a much wider capture. So we we sent we gave each each child a scrapbook, if you like, and what we were asking them to do was record incidences where they had noticed that they were using the skills in the classrooms, at home, and in the rest of their lives. So we were already thinking about transferring skills in from home to the classroom, from the classroom out to home, and across lessons around the school. But it was very broad. There were lots of different ways that they were allowed to capture things. They could get their parents to write in them. They could glue things in. Um, so it was a great way to start that conversation around them noticing themselves as learners and beginning to, to be really reflective. And so over time, it became a little bit more formalized. In the very beginning, I was conscious of not wanting to overload the students with too much writing. I had found in my previous school, and that was an assumption that I brought with me that I actually didn't need in this school. So in my previous school, writing was a huge barrier to talking and thinking, because if you ask students to start thinking and talking, they assumed that you were going to then make them write it down. And so in order to avoid writing it down, they wouldn't visibly think, and they certainly wouldn't talk to you about what they were thinking about. So to remove that barrier in the first year, these learning journals, they could choose how they wanted to record their learning. But it turned out that actually when when we did introduce the free writing, it was even better. Anything else to add on the learning journals there, James? Yeah, just so so when when we sort of increased the formality of it, so it became it became quite a routine. They weren't the most exciting lessons because it was the, the, the meditation bit was lovely, actually, just like getting the children just to go through this process of just sort of calming down. We'd turn the lights off, draw the curtains and just have a very short sort of either using a script or a recording just to sort of to, to get them focused on their breath or to use some sort of guided visualization to open up some sort of just a reflective space and just to calm them down after the hustle, hustle and bustle of, you know, being out in the school corridors and so on. And then we would get them to do largely silent writing. And then towards the end of the lesson, they would discuss them. And so we would start with some quite sort of like general questions about, you know, sort of what's gone well over the last two weeks, what are you finding difficult or challenging and why? Is there anything you feel currently stuck with? Is there anything on your mind? What strategies have you tried yet? What else might you try and so on? And then we would get into questions that were specifically and lots of what the learning journals to my mind, we're trying to achieve was about facilitating this the process of transfer out, if you like. So we were getting them to think like, what are we doing here and how can this help you in other lessons and trying to help them to make those explicit links. So we could a- either ask them questions about learning skills itself. So like, how do you feel about how learning skills lessons are going? What kinds of things have you learned in learning skills? What are you actually doing in order to learn effectively in learning skills? How is this different to other lessons? and so on. Or it might be that one week we would focus on a particular 
you know, say French and we say like, so how do you think it's going in French at the moment? What does it look like when things are going really well in French? How might you learn more effectively in French? Who learns effectively in French? What's going on for them and so on? So that they would start to just be really, really clear about when they're in their next French lesson, they're thinking about these strategies that can help them to organize their thinking and their time and so on. And sometimes they would just be writing about stuff about stuff that was going on. So so one example, in, in the sample of learning skills excerpts that we include in the study, there was this thing that they did for bullying week where there's this guy called Scary Guy who is uh, this this old this sort of ex-biker dude who's like his face is covered all in tattoos. And there's this video, you can still get it. it there used to be this thing in the UK called Teachers TV. You can still watch this on YouTube. I could send you a link if you like, because I think it's amazing. So this guy goes around schools now. He realized that he was somehow, this, he'd become contorted into this sort of figure of hate. And even his, his face, he looks like some sort of like demonic guy. But he's incredibly insightful. And he goes around schools and he, and he sets them this thing, the seven days challenge, where they're not allowed to say anything negative about another person for seven days and seven nights. And these are little year sevens. You know, a bullying week comes in November. And this is, you know, so they're quite new to the school. And some of them, they're so polite and they just, they're really scared to do anything that's naughty or out of line, you know. And I thought, this is not going to be a problem. And they were crumbling. All of them were crumbling within a day. And they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't get through a day without saying something horrible to their sibling or to their family members or so on. And as the week wore on, so they were writing in this journal and sort of saying about how they found this. And then we were talking about strategies to help them, you know, so and some of them were saying, oh, my brother has found out that I'm doing this challenge and he's purposefully trying to wind me up. And so I've found ways to undermine it. So I've started being really nice to him and saying, oh, do you want me to get you a drink or something? And that really freaks him out because he's like, what's going on? And, and so it taught them these really interesting strategies or just to say, to kill somebody with kindness, you know, somebody says something really mean to you and you say, oh, I, I was just thinking, I really like your hair today. It looks really nice. And they would walk away. And they, so they were learning all these really powerful strategies for how to manage this turbulent emotional period of time when, you know, as you know, at the age between 11 and 14, the friendships can very quickly turn to betrayal, can't they? It's a very volatile period of time. So they're learning through reflecting in, in these journals. So it wasn't only about, you know, how's it going in French? It was, they were also quite often writing about really quite personal emotional stuff that was going on for them and what they were finding difficult. That's great. Another another thing that struck me about this section on learning journals was you mentioned that you didn't mark them at all because you didn't want it to be around assessment or you know your reflection is good or your reflection is bad. And what you actually did was you responded, you wrote back to them within their their journals. And yeah. this it was very reminiscent of the film Freedom Writers. I'm not sure if either of you have seen that one where, you know, the, the teacher gets the students to write in their books and then they get locked away at the end of the day and then the teacher responds to them and then the students come back and they're like, oh, this teacher's getting to know me and they're knowing, really getting to know who I am. Um, and, and so, so it really sounded like your learning journals worked in the same way. You talked about the ways that creating that dialogue around their learning and that really personalized connection built much stronger connections um, between the teachers and the students. So that was another thing about the learning journals that really struck me. It really, it really does. It opens up a portal into their mind and you really feel like you get to know the kids. And it just felt wrong. When we first started it, we were marking them for literacy and it just felt so pedantic and just like just wrong to be marking, you know, their their internal thought processes and they're opening up and we're going, you know, write that word out three times or whatever. It just felt totally inappropriate. So we very quickly stopped doing that and it just became much more dialogic. And it's it's not an onerous 
thing to do you know it's just like you know reading what they've written and asking them a question or to you know to just delve a little bit deeper or to explain something more and yeah it is a hugely powerful thing I, I, I really am taken with it and some of the work that we've done with schools they've gone a lot further with you know giving that in the children really personalize the books so that they really become something that they 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 would form a relationship with they were letting them take them home and writing them at home and stuff we just kept them in school um but i think that there's a lot more to do with regards to learning journals and i know that you're on a bit of a journey yourself with this ollie and you're thinking about about this as well yeah i've been reading a bunch of research recently um there is there is actually a lot of evidence behind this approach of getting students to write about their learning process. Again, it's related to this kind of self-explanation effect. It acts as a bit of a, um, a bit of a way and a bit of a prompt for them to really start to, in a structured way, think about their learning and develop some of these skills that you're talking about. So it's been interesting. Kind of your book has prompted me in some ways, along with some other prompts, to to look into this more detail. And it's fascinating how much, you know, really rigorous research there is being done on learning journals and, and a lot of other things, some of which we may touch on a little bit later. It's, it's very powerful stuff. And there's more that I would do again if I did it again. So th- at the time, we weren't aware of like, the work of like James Pennebaker, who's done lots of work on this on autobiographical writing. And Jordan Peterson has done lots of work on this as well. You know, the YouTube, the controversial YouTube guy. We don't really want to open up that kind of words. But, but the work that he's done on, on self-authoring is really fascinating, you know, where they, and it's often been done with undergrads where they, and whether he's asking them to sort of to map out two futures, if you like. Like, imagine that your life has gone as well as it could have gone in five years from now. What would that look like in terms of finances, in terms of friendship groups, in terms of career and study and all of that stuff? And what would it look like if life went really badly for you? You know, like, what would it look like if your life went off the rails to come back to that idea of probation that we were talking about so that they can start to form the, a, a vision of like their own sort of version of heaven and hell as, as Jordan Peterson uses these quite religious terms, but I think it's a hugely powerful thing, and the the, the research that, that that him and his colleagues have done around that is quite compelling. That this really like reduces the dropout rates of kids at college, that it increases their grade average. It's hugely powerful. It's incredible, actually, the research and Pennebaker's research on on autobiographical writing is really really in- impressive. So. That sounds great. I'll, before we hear from Kate, I'll say that also links to some of Tim Ferriss's um, processes such as dreamlining and fear setting, which are two ones that he places a lot of emphasis on and very much in the same vein. Kate? I was just going to say, as an avid journaler myself now, I wasn't when I was teaching learning skills, but I am now. That's been an interesting journey for me, actually, taking on board for myself personally a lot of the things that I was encouraging children to develop for themselves. I would encourage teachers who are going to do this process to journal because what it gives you is an insight into patterns in your life that you might not notice otherwise. I hadn't noticed some very significant patterns about how I was making choices as a teacher and and how I make choices as an adult in the world now until I was journaling. So I cannot recommend it highly enough as a process in the morning. Fantastic. Okay, so that was journaling. So we've gone through RSC metacognition. The next thing we're looking at is a practice that can help to support self-regulated learning. And one that we've mentioned a few times today, and one of three that you mention in the book, along with curated autonomy and organizational skills, is the idea of project-based learning. So, Kate, do you want to tell us a bit about how you ran project-based learning 
in the learning skills curriculum? Sure. So we divided the year into half terms and each half term we had a new topic. And the topic was started with and some kind of immersive experience. So we either invited in a visiting speaker or whoever was leading that half term designed a kind of whiz bang lesson. And all of the students in the year had the same beginning to the project. And then the next thing that we did was to ask them what it was about. What did they hear? What were they interested in? And it was fascinating, again, going back to that idea of experiencing the same thing, but having a different experience in it and realizing that the students were picking up and hearing and remembering the things that they were interested to know more about. And so from that, from that point, we began to start building a project together. So what is it that you want to learn more about? And inside that, we could talk about criteria for success. What would a good project look like? How would you know if you had learned enough about this topic? What kind of skills are you going to need in order to carry out this project effectively? Who are you going to need to work with? What do we have within our group already that we can use to make it work? What's missing in this group that we have? And where are we going to go external from here to get what we need in order to finish this project? And so giving that decision-making power to the students was really important because they had to be able to think in that way themselves and to make decisions. So we could make the decisions that they made, but we allowed them to make their own decisions. We would talk through the decisions that they were making and ask them, kind of pick underneath, why are you doing that? Is it just a a gut reaction? Are you making this choice because that's what the person next to you is doing? Or is there a reason for it that feeds back into your learning, your learning journey and where you want to get to so that they were able to make um, more informed decisions about their learning and to give them the space to make mistakes. So they would make a decision, say, I'm going to do a project on this. I want this to be the outcome. And it would be huge. They would have decided that they were going to um, interview a rock star and then invite them to come in and, you know, like just ridiculous ideas. You say, okay, well, let's run with it. Come back to me next week and let me know if they've responded to your email. And if they hadn't even sent an email to said rock star, we'd be like, okay, so maybe we might need to revisit what we want this project to actually be and to understand what's, what's possible to achieve within a particular space of time and with the skills that you currently have and what you need to do about that. So each each half term, there was a different theme. And within that, students grouped themselves around their shared interests within that theme. And at the end of the topic or the end of the project, it had to end in a teachable moment. So whatever it was that they had been learning about, they had to teach to the rest of the group or to somebody else. So they were already planning with a particular audience in mind. So all of those things were guiding the decisions that they were making. So although it was very loose in that they could kind of go wherever they wanted to go within that broad theme, it was also quite structured. So we would talk through the process as we were going along, what's going well, have you met your targets for this week? If you haven't met them, do you know why? If you did meet them, do you know why? What do you want to replicate next time? 
all of those kinds of conversations until eventually they were able to do that quite effectively by themselves. So the first half term was a bit messy, to be honest. You know, lots of them went off with crazy ideas or they were just stuck as if they'd got a blank piece of paper and they didn't want to make a mark on it. They didn't want to get anything wrong. But once we kind of got over those initial, um, it's like an amnesty, I suppose. We said, look, honestly, you can try whatever you want to try until you feel confident in your decision-making skills. We won't punish you if the first decision doesn't bring you what you wanted it to bring you. We're going to learn from your mistakes. We're going to learn from our mistakes together. And we're going to learn, we're going to fail better next time. And so that's, that's kind of how the project-based learning works. So each teacher in the team introduced a topic that they were particularly interested or passionate about. So the, the person who was leading it was, was passionate and enthusiastic and interested and engaged themselves. So you have that kind of, you're creating an atmosphere of engaged learning from the beginning. The teacher's really interested to see where the students are going to take it. Very often, learning outcomes are closed. We know before we start what we want the children to learn. And we're going to test them on the end, test them at the end on whether or not they've learned it well enough. In this model, the learning can go anywhere. And then it, it kind of is divergent in the beginning and then it converges at the end in a shared outcome. Everybody brings a piece to that final puzzle. So that's how we put projects together. That's great. And there were two other factors or two factors that you kind of mentioned there, but I, I'd love to highlight. One was the fact that students actually, you talked about them kind of talking about what would success look like, but they actually wrote their own rubrics and those were the rubrics to wi- by which they were measured. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yes. So we it, again, as we went through this process, that became more formalized. So in the beginning, it was very much a discussion and it would go into the beginning of their project. This is what I want the outcome to be like. This is what I think outstanding will be. If I pull this off and it's outstanding, there will be these elements inside my project. If it's just good, I'll have done these things. If it's substandard, this will be missing, that will be missing. and that. So we're beginning to, to teach them to think about what they're achieving in those terms. And over time, they became more standardized. So the project briefs went out a little bit more organized. You can probably see a pattern emerging here. So in the beginning, when I was leading, it was slightly more chaotic. And when I went off on maternity leave and came back, there were all kinds of typed assignments and everything was sort of organized and a lot more standardized. But what was lovely is that over that period, the pupils got a chance to develop all kinds of different types of skills, tighter ones and looser ones. So they were able to recognize when they had done well, when they'd met their targets, when they'd achieved what they wanted to achieve. They were able to recognize when they'd missed it by a country mile. And they were really honest about it. That's what was fascinating. You would think, or it might be easy to think that they would just make it up, go, yeah, I'm excellent and give themselves an excellent on every project, but they didn't. And they also reviewed one another's work. So they were reviewing each other's presentations. They were given the success criteria. So this is what they think it will be like if it's outstanding. You are now watching them present this back to you. Do you think it meets that criteria or not? And they were able to give really honest and kind of genuinely insightful feedback to one another. You know, I think if you 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 were reading from the paper too much, I think you should look up. You should have learned it by heart. You know, you should have more confidence. You've got this. You know, that we were able to be able to talk to each other in that way. 
And as the project progressed, because we'd done this process of asking them to talk to one another and to get to know one another better, they were able to build teams to achieve what they wanted to achieve out of the skill sets hidden within each child. Rather than just doing teams in friendship groups, they were doing teams, building teams that would help them to achieve the goal that they had set for themselves. So there was a particular student, let's call her Laura, who had these amazing design skills. So if somebody wanted to do a project that finished in something visual, they would always want her to be in their team. So as time went on, they were able to speak with one another about what they wanted to achieve and almost like hire the right person for the job that they had tasked themselves, which is, I know adults who can't do that. And so, you know, you've got little 12 year olds who are able to look at one another in those terms by the end of the, yeah, probably by the end of the second year, they could definitely do that. That's amazing. I, I don't I don't recall that being something that um, I read in the book, but I think that's a fantastic point. I reckon you should add it in within the next two days. <laughs> <laughs> no more. No more. Well, that does actually prompt me to ask a question that I've been meaning to ask or that's kind of come to mind during this interview and in that um, it's been great, this interview so far, because I've, I've chatted to James so much over the last few years from the first podcast and the discussing the book in between and various other chats we've had, but I haven't had much of a chat with you, Kate. And and it's interesting how how different things come out about the learning skills when I speak to you, Kate. And I, and I see you've got some very different ways of thinking about things and of being in the world and of approaching problems and, and designing things. So I, I was curious to ask, what does each of you bring to the project that's different and complementary? In you know, and this is prompted by your discussion there of building an effective team. You you two are obviously an effective team. You've done some amazing, amazing things together and you continue to do that. So what does each of you bring that balances the other that makes you an effective team? Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, really. Like, I'm like essentially like live in my head and I, you know, like read a lot of research and think about, you know, like data and analyses and things like that. And Kate, like, just gets it in her bones. She just like shoots from the hip and uh, is much more instinctive and just sort of intuitive, I think, as a teacher. And and when she's speaking about it, I think I, I, I've still learned loads of things from listening to Kate. So I think that that's essentially it in a nutshell. Or would you add anything to that, Kate? I think James does himself a disservice. He's not enti- doesn't live entirely in his head. We have had people describe him as the head and me as the heart in the outfit, but I do also have a head and he does also <laughs> have a heart. But we are clearly weighted, I think, in different places. And so we make a good team. And there were other people in the team as well. And I that was done deliberately bringing people with different skill sets together so that we could learn from one another and become stronger together. The idea for the students was that they would be able to share their strengths with one another and support one another in developing any areas where they were weaker. And we were doing the same as a team of teachers. So as we grew stronger as a team and we all learned from one another, so we were, I think, more able to see that happening for our students and able to to encourage it. So I think building a team of people who aren't, again, the same thing, not necessarily your best mates, but the people who are going to be the best people for this job of growing together. That's great. Could you... Have you, because you've now started to work work with schools, right? You've started to do some consultancy and things like that. Have you noticed any patterns about what it takes to build a good team to implement a, a learning skills curriculum? 
I think one of the key things is establishing trust. Without trust, if you don't trust your colleagues to have your back, then I think it's really difficult to get anywhere because there is an element when you're when you're really growing and doing things that are slightly outside of your comfort zone. You know, the book is called Fear is the Mind Killer, right? It, that, that fear is the language that our body uses to speak to us to say, come back from the edge. <laughs> yeah, retreat, retreat, retreat. There's danger ahead. And so you need to be able to trust your colleagues to have your back. You also need to trust them to do their job so that you don't micromanage other people's decisions. So I would say that's something that I always talk about when I'm training in teams. Spend time getting to know one another as people, not not just the job that you do, but as the human beings that you are, so that you can recognize in one another when you need support and so that you can grow stronger together. Very heart-based answer. Love it. There you go. <laughs> now, now, now you, it's really starting to come out. I was very quiet when he was doing all the brainy stuff, but now this is my domain. <laughs> do you have a brainy, a brain-based answer about um, what makes a good team there, James? I mean, I think it's a no-brainer that you would go through this process of having a selective like interview process to get people on this team who actually want to be there. In the, we talked about this in the previous podcast. Like in the past, pe- these, this thing has been given to people who are referred to as skeptical conscripts in the literature. People who, for whom just, they've just got a bit of time on their timetable, because there's no, you know, GCSE in learning to learn. Sometimes people think, oh, this doesn't contribute directly to the school's results. Short-sightedly, as we've seen, that it can contribute to their results across all kinds of subjects, but they just they it just doesn't get resourced properly. And if you're not going to staff it properly then there's no point in doing it. So I think that you have to have people who are really up for it. And also, as Kate says, where there's a balance of people, of personalities, of skill sets within that team. So there were people who applied to be on the team who were really, really good at certain things, but who we thought, oh, actually, that's not really going to work within this context. And so you need to be thinking about the mix of people who are going to you know, be working together to make sure that you've got the bases covered and that you're not too, you know, too weighted in one direction. And the other thing is that this has to really have the support of the, it's a bit of a wider question really, but it really has to have the support of the school's leadership and be something that's that's quite core. It's quite a central thing to do. This isn't just something, even though it's like face value, when this started out, it was a, it started out as a year seven taught curriculum and there was five of us in it. And that's, that sounds like a small thing, but as time went on, a number of people in that team were sort of teaching and learning leads who were in charge of CPD across the school or were helping to, to write the CPD program across the school. And so we were able to influence how joined up things became more widely across the school. And it really needs to have the visible and constant support of the school's leadership team. We've worked with the schools in the past where we've been brought in to help them, but it's essentially been the sort of the head of year seven who's who's brought this in as a year seven thing. But the senior team doesn't really know what's going on. They don't really have an oversight of it. They're not visibly and audibly supporting it. And unsurprisingly, it fizzles out when you do that. Like this is really a fundamental change in the way that we think about how learning happens and how in Dylan Williams comment on the book he said that he likes the way that this just draws out the common elements of learning across the curriculum and that's something that you is really like it's, it's not just the learning skills team therefore that we're talking about we're talking about the whole team of teachers the senior leader team and they need to be ready for change and not every school is so 
there's quite a lot to that question, actually, but that's the short answer. That's great. I mean, could you give us a bit of an overview of like some of the things that you have been doing with schools? Have you worked with any schools who have said, we want to dedicate five periods per week to our year sevens to do learning skills? Has it been that intense and that involved or have you been mainly doing one day trainings? What's it generally look like? Well, so far, we've, so we, we've not worked with huge numbers of schools. Probably the biggest one that we did, we went out to China last year to work with an independent school in Shanghai where we did really intensive, we were training with them, for we were there for a week and we were training all day, every day for a week. If you times up the number of sessions by the number of people in each session, we put in something like over a thousand CPD hours into that school in the space of sort of four or five days. And that was working on three levels, one with, with the whole staff. So we would see like, just like the nuts and bolts of like metacognition, self-regulation, oracy. Here's how to bring these ideas to life within your subject area. So we did two half-day sessions with the whole staff. We were working with an implementation team, which was like a vertical slice through the organization. So working with teaching assistants, classroom teachers, teachers who are NQ newly qualified, teachers who've been teaching for 20 or 30 years, middle leaders, senior leaders, the special needs coordinator and so on, so that we're looking at this across the piece so that we're really thinking about this process of change management, how we're going to get this to connect across the piece. And then most of that time, I think two days of it, was spent working with a specialist learning to learn team to look at how they were going to focus it. And I think, as I remember, Kate, you might remember it better. It was like their, their upper prep school so it was an all through independent school and this is an upper prep curriculum so I think it was sort of like years four to six where they were giving it curriculum time and it didn't have they weren't able to give it the five hours a week straight away but that might be something that you would work towards rather than like when we when we talk about that people often their eyes widen and they go whoa that's a lot of time where did that time come from you're taking time away from subjects this sort of gets people's heckles up and so, and I understand that. And so we, we don't necessarily recommend that schools dive straight into doing, you know, from a standing start to doing five lessons a week, although that's what we did. We, we were talking about them giving it more curriculum time. And there was, you could see that there was some sort of internal conflict within, within that implementation team. The learning to learn team were much more sort of gung-ho and thinking, yeah, we need to throw everything that we've got at this. Other people were sort of thinking we need to be a bit more conservative and see how it goes. And there's no one. One of the things that we're really keen to to get across in this book is that this is not a guaranteed recipe for success, and we don't want people to to think of this book as a sort of as a go to guide to just take off the shelf and implement what we did at Seaview. We can almost guarantee that if you do that, it won't work. Not because they're bad ideas. There's there's loads of really good ideas in the book, but that approach to implementation doesn't work. Like you have to engage the autonomy and the agency of the people who are involved in making this happen. Because otherwise, they've not got skin in the game, you know. Like, it changes the conversation. Instead of asking, will this work here? The question becomes, what will it take to make this work here? You know, and that change is absolutely fundamental. Everything. Yeah, it really so We is. had a whole, a whole chapter on change management and personal growth and what it takes. And we just, like, it had to go. There were too many words in the book. But that is a very important element of it, that you've got a team of people who are doing what they can do with what they have, that you're not pulling people too far out of their comfort zone with you. You've got to have 
you've got to have a group who are willing willing to go there and able to go there. So if that means that you start with one or two lessons a week, whether you're combining PSHE with some tutor time, and you start there and you gradually expand outwards. So that's kind of what you want to be doing is start where you can really have strong influence because the most important people in all of this are the pupils, it's not the teachers. If you can get the kids to do this for themselves, they will take it with them through the school and they will spread it from the ground up. Yeah. I think that this would be a good point. Can I just share with you an excerpt from from this interview that I did? Because I think that it illustrates that point really well of how the, like this spreads through the kids. So this was from an interview with the with the head of PE, who said that she came to this school from another school where attainment was higher and where the kids were more independent. But she said, when I arrived here, I found that all the kids expected to be spoon fed. There was no independence. Even now with the year 11s, they still crave that spoon feeding. They even struggle to start a piece of work off. I have to put a page up on the board where I put the title up for them. I show them how to lay out their work. I show them how to structure it with an introduction, research findings, opinions, conclusions. She said that they just don't know how to structure their work. I even have to start their sentences off. It's like they don't even know how to start a sentence. And then I asked her, how is your experience different at Key Stage 3? And she said, it's huge. The type of feedback that they give to each other is much more constructive. It has more meaning and it's clearly not made up. It's accurate and demonstrates that they've really thought about what they're saying. I've got sentence stems that I take with me to some of the lessons and I don't need them. Or if they do need them, I only need to use it once and then they can transfer it and use it again and again in other activities. She said, going back to key stage four to the older students, when we're teaching teamwork and leadership skills, there's usually the same students who do most of the leadership, whereas with the younger students, there is contribution from all students and they don't seem as scared to get things wrong. And then the final bit, she goes on, there's quite a long excerpt in the book, but the final bit, she talks about one particular lesson. She said, a few weeks ago was the feeling I had where I just facilitated the lesson. I didn't even have to be there, really. Another teacher came over. It was year seven girls, and they had to design a warm-up. They had to teach it. They had to organize themselves and agree on their own roles within it. They did this so quickly, they then led another group through the warm-up activity. And once they'd finished the other group, they had a big group discussion about what each student achieved on their leadership skills and why they then had to give that feedback back to each kid who did the warm-up activity. And the other teacher who came over couldn't believe the quality of the feedback. It included grades and advice as to how to improve. Each session, I gave minimum instructions to them. They just exceeded my expectations. And she goes on to say that I definitely think that learning to learn has been a big influence in that. I mean, it's amazing. And I think a really powerful thing to reflect upon here is if we just think about, for example, the colleagues with whom we work and how the average person would engage with such an activity like that and would the average person whether they be a colleague or someone in society be able to achieve such a high standard in a task like that if they were given it the the average adult and you know I would speculate that the average adult would not be able to engage in an activity that effectively and so it's just it really highlights the power of taking such a structured, systematic, um, but also flexible approach to teaching learning skills when you can get the year sevens to do these, you know, amazing feats. Yes, and something that was quite interesting 
that came out of when we talked to the kids about why do they think that learning skills helped you to learn better? Because we shared some of the some of the research findings with them, not the stuff about people premium kids. We didn't think that would be appropriate, but you know, we talked about the data suggests that kids who do learning skills do better. Why do you think that is? And it's like some of them said stuff that you might expect. They said things like when you're in learning skills. You learn how to do things that you can use in other lessons. You learn how to be more confident. And what you learn sticks with you and teaches you to act the same in other lessons. Another student said, like, because you always made us think about the reasons, you always made us use the word because, so it made us think more deeply. But another comment that came out in the interviews and also in some of the learning journals was that they said that it was because it was a more relaxed environment in learning skills and in other lessons. They said it was more calm and relaxed and it makes you able to concentrate a bit more because it's more quiet and I don't know, it's just easier to concentrate. She said, I feel more able to be confident because there weren't any consequences if you don't do it. Like we didn't really get leveled. I mean, their the, the projects got leveled a bit, but quite a lot of, especially the higher achieving students who often feel the pressure to perform in their other subjects, they, they said that they just, they felt like they were able to relax and because we'd taken that pressure of them to perform, that actually it helped, it just gave them the space to really think about themselves and to think about how to express themselves and to stretch themselves out in new and different ways. And that was something that I wasn't really expecting, A, for them to, to think, and B, for them to think that that was actually helpful. But it was interesting that that came out. Yeah, I was just going to add that they were performing for themselves. They were looking to improve themselves and not looking externally for validation of the performance that they put in. So the performance anxiety was different. There was a, a motivation to perform to see if they could achieve the standard that they had set for themselves, not necessarily get the grade that they needed from somebody else, from a teacher. And so it was a very different way of watching them grow. And actually, I think that they achieved things far above my expectations of what the average year seven could achieve by the end of the year. I mean, I had a good idea. The whole reason I put it together was that I had a good idea that it was work, but it completely exceeded my expectations. It blew my socks off what they could do by the end of the year. That's great. And to add some different vocab to what you were saying there, perhaps the students started to take more of a mastery orientation as, a, as opposed to a kind of a performance orientation. And another thing, you know, I've been doing this research on cognitive load theory recently, and one of the cognitive load effects is the goal-free effect. Essentially, when students stop focusing on the goal, they can learn more about the mechanisms that underlie the problem and gain a deeper understanding. And so we, I haven't seen many people talk about that in terms of like larger scale learning, but really, I think it's a much more powerful effect than we often think about it because it basically says when you take away the goal as the focus, people can just focus on the learning that underlies that and the mechanisms of the problem, the interactions within the problem or the scenario. So that's that's a really another interesting connection to make there. So imagine someone's been listening or a, you know, a group of people have been listening to this podcast together and they've come to this point and you know, they're totally convinced, they love this learning skills idea and they're going, all right, we're ready to go, where do we start? And we might start with imagining it's a principal or a couple of school leaders who are at this point. What advice would you give to some school leaders who are wanting to embark upon this learning skills journey? 
Okay, so <clears throat> I mean, I'm assuming that the that the, those school leaders would already have a good grasp of where their school is at and how ready for change that that group of teachers is, because not every school is in a position where they can take this on. They might be in a particularly volatile period of time. They might have high staff turnover or whatever the whatever the reason. So I think that it's usually a sensible idea to do some kind of an audit, probably quite a soft audit, just having some conversations with people walking around the school, just getting a feel for like, do, can I get a sense for who would be on this team, who would be able to carry this forward and so on. So some sort of a needs analysis, really. And likewise, among the kids, you know, like, are the kids going to be able to take this on? Do you have templates or something for that kind of an audit? Or like, what does that audit look like? That's a good question. I haven't really got a template. No, I was just thinking that it was it would be something like a, you know, a combination of, of, of like soft data collection, conversations with people walking around the school, talking to kids, maybe some focus groups, talk about this as an idea. What do you think about this? Do you think it's a good idea? Do you got any concerns about it? Likewise with teachers. So I, yeah, I've not got like a formal, you know, protocol or whatever, but I mean, it's the sort of stuff that school leaders have got a pretty good sense of anyway. I went to, when we first were doing this back in the previous school, the head teacher called a meeting and said, I have an idea, something I want to explore. If there's anybody here who would be interested in exploring this idea further with me, come to a staff meeting. And so it was a very open and honest place for having a conversation about whether or not we were ready for doing something like this and whether or not there were people who would be willing to take it forward. And that's kind of where it started. That's nice. So then if you're going to go for it, in the book, we recommend based on the UK school year, we sort of say that like by round about Easter time, so roughly about 12 weeks before the, the end of the school year, you should appoint your, your team and have some sort of a selection process to appoint a team of teachers and to give the timetable a time to sort of make all the pieces fit and so on. And it's important that the timetable makes it so that the, so that the classes are mixed ability, which is important because that was how we started out. And then in one of the later years, it got backed against English on the timetable, which meant that it was sort of setted in the same way that English was. And, and it doesn't work nearly as well if, if it's in groups by prior attainment. So appoint your team. We could talk a little bit about that, if you like, about the, the process for like, you know, some of, the, some of the, the key things to bear in mind when appointing the team. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. So I guess I borrowed the model from my previous boss. He'd sent out that email that James said that he had responded to. People said that they were up for talking about it and thinking about whether they would want to be part of this thinking curriculum, as it was called at the time. And then we held kind of formal interviews. There was a member of SLT there, and I had prepared a list of questions. And at that time, they were based around the PLTS, the Personal Learning and Thinking Skills. It was just a framework amongst other frameworks, skills-based frameworks that existed And so I gave it to each person who had applied to be part of the team. And I asked them which was their favorite and why and which they felt that the students of this school needed the most and why. And what I was looking for was how well do they know their students? Can they tell me anecdotes? Are they, how aware are they really of who they're teaching and what they need? And also what their particular bent was I suppose whether they were more so the PLTS as I recall there was critical thinking skills in there there were teamwork skills organizational skills so I was looking to build a team that had those strengths that were more interested in different areas 
so that they could each kind of take the lead in developing the tiny skills that would go inside each of those headings. So that's what I was looking for when I was building my team. How well did they know their students? How well did they know themselves? And what were their particular passions? What would they want to develop within the team so that we made sure that the strengths went all the way across what we were trying to do? That's great. That sounds like a really, really sensible approach. Yeah, (laughs) it was. And and Kate was really quite, so so Kate was clearly the boss, like she was in the interview room. And that was the first time that I met her was in the interview room. But she did a really good impression of not being the boss in the best possible sense. Like there was just, there was no sense that she was sort of telling us what to do. Like it, and it didn't feel like that at all. It really felt like this big collaborative endeavor right from the outset. And then the, the only thing that I would add then is the school then needs to think about, the, you know, this idea of a complex intervention, the idea of an intervention with many moving parts. I think that's a really powerful idea so that the incremental gains and marginal gains that arise from each of the individual things that you do stack up and interact and you get this bigger effect size overall. And so that's a really useful framework. But what the what the complex intervention contains, I think, needs to be decided by that team. And so in the book, we've got, like you mentioned yesterday, there's like hundreds of ideas in there for like things that people could do. But if you tried to implement everything that's in the book, you would go mad. And so we don't we don't present it as a fait accompli or something that can be implemented off the shelf. In fact, it's the absolute opposite. It, it, we almost guarantee that it won't work if you implement it off the shelf, not because they're bad ideas, they're not, but because off the shelf, top down implementation is itself a bad idea. So they need to essentially like do some research, do some reading, think about what the kids need, what their strengths are, and then think about how they're going to put their own best bet together in terms of a complex intervention. Mm. Speaking about bets, I mean, the bet that no, I think it was Stuart, your your principal made at the time was a pretty massive one, the, the time commitment that he allocated to it. If there are school leaders who are listening to this and saying, I hear this, I, I understand it's really important, but I just am not in a position or I don't feel comfortable, you know, allocating that much time. What, what, what would you say to that? Mm. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Five lessons a week sounds like a lot. And it is. I mean, there are ways that you can that you can make time quite easily in the sense that so if you if you pull together, for example, if you if you make the learning skills team the year seven tutors, so they're already spending some time with those kids and doing some pastoral work with them, and you get them to teach, say, PSHE and at the time we did PSHE and IT. What's that stand for for the international listeners? Personal, social and health education so sort of sex education drugs ed uh, citizenship politics and all, all kinds of stuff it's a great subject do you have something like that you know yeah i'm just distracted though because when you said citizenship then it sounded like something else um but yes we do have <laughs> we do have something like that in australia i've never taught it myself right that, yeah you're missing out it's a great subject to teach mm so you can you could easily get together sort of two and a half three hours a week say by just just from just out of tutor time and PSHE and for example like IT or something like that we we so we were we were teaching in computer rooms and so they were learning some some IT skills while they were doing what they were doing with us but I mean you do come to a point where you think like 
you have to invest time in this you know if you want to if you want to take this really seriously you have to invest time and as the program sort of phased out as it was there was lots of there was lots of changes of leadership at sea view as we, as we were leaving the school they, they ended with a version where they were having it for like one lesson a week and it's i just don't think that there's any point in doing it if you if you're not going to invest some serious time in it because you're just sort of paying lip service to it and especially because the meat of it like it's all about stepping back it's about the teacher finding ways to step back so that the children can learn how to how to find out what they can and can't do in the absence of supervision by definition that takes time you know and and like so the the bulk of what we did was project-based learning probably about around about three of the five hours a week was was allocated to that and I don't think that there's any short version of that. You know, you, you have to invest the time. But, you know, I, I understand that people might have concerns about five lessons a week. And so maybe start with three or four and see how that goes. And I think that, it, that there's also a case for maintaining it beyond just year seven as well. Like we, we run it into year eight and nine. So, I mean, it's a big thing to invest in. But if you think about, you know, the the, the fact that these kids went on if you if you look at the CVU study these kids went on to perform so much better in those subjects where they were having less less lesson time and so you, when you te- it stands to reason that when you teach kids how to learn proactively rather than reactively and they find their on switch and they're more switched on and they're more confident and articulate so they're able to articulate their thoughts and make get their needs met in their lessons then you can achieve more in less time but it is a it is an investment. You have to take a bit of a leap of faith and think and you know have faith that this is going to pay off. Absolutely. Mm. What about embedding it? Like some people might think, oh, you, you know, what if we just embed it? Like we get each maths teacher to do a little bit of this, and we put it into English a little bit here and things like that. What's what's your view on an embedded approach? Yeah, I mean, you need you need it to be embedded a bit as well. But with the best will in the world, it just doesn't work. An embedded only approach, either in theory. Because, you know, like the research suggests that like lots of teachers, like we talked about earlier, lots of teachers aren't really that that au fait with the, that sort of mode B teaching with this sort of, you know, project based learning, teaching oracy skills and so on. And also it's less efficient that way. If the kids are having to learn speaking and listening skills or project management skills from 10 different subject teachers who've all got a different take on it. A, you're going to have lots of replication. B, there's going to be lots of you know confusing messages. And so with the best one in the world, I mean, I'm not aware of, a, of an embedded only approach that has worked. But this is a debate that's existing since the 70s. Should you teach learning skills as a discrete course or should it be embedded across the piece? And people have always taken one or other of those views. And we just thought, well, that's ridiculous that like you do both, obviously. Like you, and, and you have strategies in place to promote the transfer from one to the other. So you have those three sort of structural parts, the talk course, the embedded bits, and the transfer mechanisms. Totally. Um, I, I can probably say a few things to this as well. Like ev- ever since we chatted, James, and even before that, I've been really interested in supporting this these kinds of things in my own classroom. But even for a teacher who's like really quite passionate about these things, I've just found it incredibly hard to do, right? Number one, to find the time. Number two, to find activities which tick my curriculum boxes at the same time as being well suited to developing the skills for students. And number three, and this is something I've come across more recently when delving into the – 
research in, in, into the self-explanation effect. From a cognitive load perspective, you know, you actually ask, if you're doing it embedded, you're asking students to think about the content which is new, which is a high load, and then also these meta skills on top. And the combined cognitive load is often way too much for them. So that's, a, that's another perspective that I've gained recently. Absolutely. All right. Well, even though we've just said that, there are no doubt some teachers out there who are really keen to to do some of these things themselves. I mean, I just shared some of my experiences, but that's as primarily a year 11 and 12 teacher. So the curriculum is even more packed in high stakes. But there might be some teachers in some earlier years who have a little bit more flexibility and they want to try a few of these things out in their in their own classrooms before, you know, their their school gets on board with the whole idea. So would you have any advice to teachers who have a bit of an inkling and want to, you know, dabble in a few of these strategies and support their students in their own classrooms? Sure. I think a lot of what James was just saying is reflected and also the words that you just used, high stakes. I think all teachers know that there are some elements of what they do that have lower stakes. So you could start with a piece of homework potentially. So if you, you look at what you're teaching the curriculum and where it really lends itself to developing these kinds of skills and where you have opportunities to talk about what you're doing and choose a piece of work or a project or a piece of homework or something that you're doing where you can begin to introduce these ideas and you do it together. You say, you know, this is an experiment. We're trying it together. I want to see what happens. I'm really curious to know how the experience is for you. I'm going to talk to you afterwards about how the experience has been for me. And if it's been successful, we're going to extend that. We're going to expand that. So you start where you have the most control and where you feel the most confident that it's going to work, that it's going to be positive. You know, you look for the easy wins in life. That's a sensible thing to do. And then from there, you begin to grow. Because if you can, if you can make this work with your homework projects, then you can perhaps begin to make extra space in curriculum time. If homework is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you in lesson time because the students are taking responsibility for it, because they know how to do it effectively and because it's working, because homework historically is something that we put a lot of time and energy into and don't always get the results that we want. So what might a homework thing look like? Because I'm not quite sure what you mean when you say you do it in homework. What, what could a teacher try to do that's in line with the learning skills that, that can be enacted through homework? So if there's a particular piece of curriculum content, you can have a conversation with them about how they think they're going to go about learning it. Because what we tend to tell them to do is this is what you've got to learn and this is where you've got to look. And this is what I want the proof that you've learned it to look like, right? And so they just have to do the task. And they either do the task or they don't do the task. So if you ask them to design the task, this is what you need to know by the end of the task. How are you going to go about learning it? What do you think is the best way for you to learn this task? And that just opens up the conversation to begin with, that there's more than one way to learn something. Even that's a a big mind shift for lots of students. So you could do something as simple as that, as saying, right, these are, have a conversation, five, give five minutes at the end of your lesson to talk this through. There's more than one way to learn stuff. How many ways do we know? Which do we think is going to be the most effective for this task? And then come back, you know, in two days or a week or whenever it is that you have your homework cycle and talk about it again. How was it for you? You've marked the homework by then. What went well? What didn't work? 
why did it? Why didn't it? What are we going to do next time? And sort of build from there. And you can do that with parts of your lessons as well. But I think it's really important for teachers before they go too big to feel confident about what's working for them and for their students. So play around with it a little while with things that are lower stakes because, you know, the book is called Fear is the Mind Killer. If you take a brave step, there's that moment where you're going over the edge, right? And you're like, oh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I want to pull back. So if you give them revise for an end of year exam, however you like, you know, use your learning skills and it, you're going to be terrified that it's going to go horribly wrong. So that's not where you start. You start with something. If you want to teach them different ways of memorizing things, just ask them to memorize something, anything, and do a two minute low stakes test on whether or not they can memorize. And once they've got a system for memorizing, then you can use that for homework tasks and other tasks. It's just about kind of building it up almost like a patchwork of ideas until it begins to solidify into a way of working. Makes sense. You did mention there um, the title of the book, Fear is the Mind Killer. And we've mentioned it a couple of times. We've mentioned stakes. We've mentioned risks and bets and fears in this podcast. But I thought it might be a good time to to talk about the title. What is this title all about, Fear is the Mind Killer? So the first time that I came across it was through an interview with with one of the teachers who was a, a learning skills teacher, Paul Meredith, brilliant teacher, science teacher. And I asked him later on, to what extent has teaching learning skills changed you as a science teacher? And he said it was absolutely massive that it really changed him as a science teacher. And in particular, that it was about the children's fear of failure and how they some of them will sit paralyzed before a, a blank piece of graph paper for like 20 minutes, scared to put pencil to paper because they don't want to do it wrong and they'd rather just do nothing than just, you know, then so they can sort of just become almost like this overcorrection. It's like, a really, you know, what's wrong with putting a bit of graph paper in the bin and starting again? Nothing. But some kids just like are so averse to the idea of doing anything that's not perfect right from the outset, even having to use a rubber, they hate it. And he said that he talks, that had just become a continual conversation for him, that he was talking about how fear was stopping them from doing things. And that actually, there's nothing that scary about, you know, trying to graph a few times before you get it right. This is what learning looks like. And he kept using this phrase, fear is the mind killer, which I hadn't come across. But it, so it's from a book called Dune. I, it turns out that I had seen the film years before. It's an, an amazing book. I've read it since. The, the book's amazing. The film was really not amazing. But so in the book, there's this sort of an ancient order of, of women po- politicians and sort of philosophers called the Bene Gesserit. The Bene Gesserit have this mantra that they repeat to themselves over and over, the litany against fear. I've got it here if you want to hear the litany against fear. Go on, share it with us, James. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And it's an amazing little piece of writing that. And I think the the reason that I was so attracted to it was that it really captures something about going back to the first question you asked about, like what's the purpose of education? And we were talking about self-actualization and like growing into yourself. I love that idea because like these fears are so endemic within schools. You know, if you talk to kids, like why did, why did you not stick your hand up in that conversation, even though you knew the answer? 
And they're like, yeah, but there's just a little part of me that just thought maybe I'm not and maybe I look like an idiot. And so it's safer to just keep my mouth shut than to take a risk. And, you know, the fear of the fear of public speaking is is huge, not just among kids, but among people. There's, there's been repeated surveys that have found that that many people are more are, are more afraid of public speaking than they than they are afraid of death which is just mind-boggling. You know, if they were at a funeral, they'd rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. And it's not that, like, I mean, I remember what it was like to be terrified of public speaking, but now we both do it, you know, quite a lot and without often without a second thought. And it's something that you can get over, you know. And so fear is an amazing thing. It can be very, very powerful and it can really, so it keeps you in your lane and makes you afraid even there. And actually, when you f- confront your fear and you explicitly sort of address, you identify what it is, and then you expose yourself to it, like Kate says, not jumping straight into the deep end necessarily, but just sort of, you know, just like a little bit of exposure, first of all, and building up, you find that fear is remarkably brittle, actually, and you grow into that space. And so that line from that from that litany, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing, only I will remain. I, I just think that that captures it really nicely. So yeah, that's why we and, and it was sort of as we were writing the book, we were just thinking like, what's the big idea that underpins everything that we've been doing for the last sort of fifteen years? And like the very nature of, of learning skills is that it's a complex intervention. Like there is no one big idea. It's like all of these little ideas and practices and concepts that sort of fit together into this big package. But then we so we just kept coming back to this phrase: fear is the mind killer. And actually that does go a really long way to capturing the essence of what it was that we're doing. And so the final chapter of the book, the conclusion is called Antidotes to Fear. And we identify a number of antidotes or the opposites of fear, if you like. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember them, but I think one of them is experience. You know, that's the, the idea of exposure, knowledge, and that's knowledge of, of contents. There's this amazing quote from Emerson about how knowledge is the, the opposite of the antidote to fear. And also knowledge of self, you know, like when you know a lot about yourself, when you have a stronger sense of identity, that's a huge antidote to fear because you can think, well, I can overcome this. I know who I am and I've, I've overcome stuff like this in the past. Safety is a big one, which Kate can probably talk about better than I can. And then the last couple are overcoming disadvantage. You know, there's like huge problems with, with um, social and economic disadvantage. As you know, in education, the gap gets wider and disadvantage predicts education outcomes and also life outcomes, life expectancy, future earnings. You know, so we can nip that in the bud early on if we can close that gap. And the last one is courageous leadership which, as you say, like that's what Stuart had in spades, and that's what it takes. You know, you, you have to put your money where your mouth is. If you really want to change the life trajectories of these kids, then you know you need to invest the time in, into doing that. And that's not an easy thing to do when your job is on the line, and when you know, the, the, you know, fear is not just something that's endemic among kids; it's endemic among teachers as well. You know, there's there's like not necessarily everybody, but there's a fearfulness to teaching often. There's high stakes accountability. You know, that I don't know if you've ever had that shock of fear when in, during an Ofsted inspection or some whatever your equivalent of Ofsted is, when the door handle goes and you you just get this flood of adrenaline through your body. You know, there's that, there's all kinds of ways in which fear plays out in the profession as well. And so we as teachers need to model that and we need to, to, to address our own fears of, of stepping out of our comfort zone. So I'll stop ranting now about fear. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of where I tried to start the podcast with uh, that little uh, off script moment. So uh, I'm grateful to you for both going along there. Did you have anything to add to that, Kate? 
I suppose just that one of the big reasons for putting the learning skills curriculum together was to create the conditions where those fears could be faced and overcome daily. So I was one of those teachers who loved school trips. I know we're an odd breed, but I really loved taking the kids out of school because I noticed something very quickly that they behaved completely differently. So the other side to that fear of failure is what's underneath it. And that's the very often the fear of being rejected by their peers. And this is a very deeply rooted fear that we have from primitive times, really, about how dangerous it is for a human being to be separated from the rest of the tribe. So we want to fit in and we feel that really strongly. So in a classroom environment, if there's an opportunity to make ourselves stand out and perhaps be ridiculed or laughed at, we are not going to take that opportunity. But when you take kids out of school, a lot of their guard comes down and they are all a little bit vulnerable together because they're all going through a new experience together. And so they form different relationships with one another and they try things in a different way. They're more open to having new experiences and giving things a go and making a bit of a fool of themselves. And so there isn't enough time in the world to keep doing that again and again. So these experiences were too few and too far between. So one of the things that I had wanted to create with the learning skills curriculum was the space and the time to have these experiences together so that they could knit their relationships with one another together so that they could feel braver to make a fool of themselves in the classroom when they were learning as well. And so that they could feel braver to try new things and maybe not get them right first time. So that the thing that James is talking about, about pieces of paper remaining blank for an entire lesson or just being thrown out of the classroom window because they didn't want any proof. That's the kind of thing that goes away when you've got an environment of safety, because the safety doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. So if you trust that you can give something a go, even if it doesn't work, and you'll still be accepted within your group afterwards, then you're much more likely to start doing that more naturally. The fear dissipates. You hold yourself back less. And that gives you more experiences of having survived that kind of experience. And so you're, yeah, you just become more courageous and more able to try new things. So that's what the fear is about for me, is about creating the conditions that take that fear away and having that sort of team experience, but inside the curriculum. So you don't need to leave the building. It's not something that only the kids who can afford it get to have. It's something that everybody gets to go through together so that they, as James said, so that they get to know themselves. They're like, I can do this. I did that thing before. I can do this thing again. Fantastic. And there's some great stories in the book that exemplify that. I I recall one in particular of a student trying to do some public speaking to return to that topic and, you know, just being petrified the first time and not even rocking up and then coming back and facing the fear again and thinking, you know, it wasn't so bad last time when I was, you know, petrified, I just stood there and looked like an idiot and now I can come back and actually say something and, you know, I can't look like more of an idiot than I did before, (laughs) however exactly it went. But yeah, so, so that makes a lot of sense. You've sent this book out, even though it isn't quite out yet, and this podcast might even come out a little bit before the book has actually been officially released, but you've actually sent it out to a lot of people. You've sent it out to a lot of big names who are well known right across the the teaching spectrum, if we want to talk in those, you know, from mode A to mode B and back again. 
I was wondering, what's the reception been like? Largely, it's been really, really encouraging and positive and lovely to hear back from. Yeah, we've had an incredible response, really. And like you say, we, we asked a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, education researchers, you know, like early career teachers, really experienced teachers, people with a big profile who've written books themselves and who've got that insight as like, authors as well as, as as consumers of education literature. We've had some really, really useful feedback as well, like critical feedback that's just, you know, it's taken probably most of the last month to respond to all of the critical feedback that we've had. And that's been really just like made the book a lot stronger as a result. So I'm hugely grateful to the fact that people, because it's not a short book, you know, people have really given their time freely to to go through this, yourself included, Ollie, with a fine tooth comb and to really just sort of support us with this. So we're, we're hugely grateful to people for that. But yeah, the short answer is like really, really positive. And we're really excited now to get it out there and see what see what people make of it more widely. That's great. And, you know, I thought it was kind of important to share perhaps, you know, some of the quotes or some of the receptions, especially from people who would often think at the other end of the teaching spectrum, because I think that, I mean, as you've both said, learning skills is kind of hanging on a thread or it has been for a while. But I think, at least for me, what this lockdown's done is it's brought to the fore the importance of those self-regulation skills more than anything else could have. I'm not sure if I said this earlier in the podcast, but I've said it to a few different people over the last few days and weeks. You know, the gap between the students who do well in my classes and the students who struggle just got monumentally larger during this time because I lost all my ability to basically regulate my students for them, right? I couldn't get in contact with them. I couldn't get them to attend the lessons for, you know, a few students in each class. And it just really showed the role that this self-regulation plays in education and the extent to which teachers oftentimes play the role of the self-regulator or the regulator to the students. And so I think that there are quite a few people, and I spoke to actually a couple of teachers from a a pretty explicit instruction-centric school here in Victoria last night over Skype as well. And, you know, they were saying similar things. So I think that there is a bit of a shift and a bit of more of an acknowledgement of the importance of these learning skills, which kind of I'm hoping is going to open a door for more schools to more sensitively and perhaps more creatively combine the strengths of both worlds, you know, right from explicit instruction and more traditional approaches with these kind of softer skills and and getting that balance more right, I think, moving forward. So I guess that's why I was really keen to to potentially hear some of those voices and and also to say, say a little bit there myself. So this book closes a certain chapter for both of you in your lives, but also I'm sure is opening many more doors. So I I just wanted to ask you both, what are you each of you really excited about at the moment as you kind of sign on dotted line with this book and, and send it to the printing press? What are you really excited about right now? Okay. So when James and I finished working on this together, we set up Rethinking Education and we had this big plan to become really high-ranking education consultants helping lots of people in lots of places. And, um, you know, that didn't take off quite as quickly as our enthusiasm would have liked. And in that space, I found myself presented with an opportunity to reapply learning skills in a new context. And I went off and spent some time in Calais in France, where there was a big unofficial refugee camp called The Jungle. So I took the learning skills 
ideas and the curriculum and the methods and everything. And I met a trauma therapist there. And a lot of what I had been doing intuitively in learning skills, I realized was intuitive trauma-informed practice. And I developed a whole new vocabulary for talking about self-regulation and all of those kinds of things that we had been doing, but I understood them now on a much deeper level. And so it's turned into something else called the human hive, where we do pop-up education for the places that big education models just can't reach. So refugee camps, homeless populations, all kinds of people who find themselves outside of the system. And I am now in Dominican Republic, and I am about to open a pop-up hive school here for families, an international community of families who have no education for their children. So I'm very excited to be opening a school and going back into the classroom on Monday. I am training the teachers, I'm training the parents to be volunteer supporters. And so learning skills has taken on a slightly new identity outside of mainstream education as well. So I'm very excited to be taking all of the learning skills ideas to new frontiers. That's great. You're looking surprisingly awake for someone who's about to open a school, Kate. How do you do it? During a period of global school closures as well, she's opening a school, which is just typical Kate, really. I'm self-regulating like a lot. (laughs) I'm keeping myself busy, trying to keep myself well. Fantastic. Good on you. James, what are you excited about? So in the short term, I mean, this has just been such a long time in the incubator. You know, Kate started this thing 15 years ago. I joined the journey 10 years ago, been two years in the writing. So I'm just really excited to get this this book out and to see what people make of it. And beyond that, you know, like you were just saying about how it seems, it seems to me just like such an obvious thing that we haven't got this right yet, that we haven't got the balance right and teaching children how to learn. You know, it just seems like such a good idea. If it's possible to do that, as well as teaching them what to learn, which we're, you know, predominantly concerned with, if it's possible to teach them how to get better at learning and how to be more switched on and confident and curious and all of those things, and the evidence is strong that it can, then, you know, the the prospect of scaling this up on a massive scale is really, really exciting. And I don't see any reason why that why that can't happen. In the book, we talk about the analogy of early flight pioneers, you know, like people were crashing around in all kinds of ridiculous contraptions for a long time before the Wright brothers, you know, took to the skies. And it feels a little bit like, you know, sometimes people have looked at learning to learn, especially, you know, in the sort of in the period of time when people were doing things like learning styles and brain gym, and they were just pointing at it and going, ha, that's a ridiculous contraption. This is never going to get off the ground. And, you know, another way of looking at that is saying, yeah, we've been through some growing pains for sure, but we've learned an awful lot along the way about what this looks like and what it shouldn't look like. And it feels like we're poised at this point to really take this up. I mean, I want to hedge that a little bit. You know, Seaview is one school and we've done this in one school. But the reason that I feel so hopeful that it can be scaled up is because we're not saying to people, here is the idea, go and scale it up. We're saying here's a framework, and it's very, it's quite theoretical, really, the idea of a complex intervention. Go and build your own one and make this work. And like we said earlier, t- if you turn the conversation from will this work here to what will it take to make this work here, and when you've got people who are running it who've who've got some time and energy and invested in making it happen, 
I just can't see how it can fail, really. And I think that the potential benefits in terms of outcomes for young people is absolutely monumental if we can if we can get this thing happening on a big scale. So that's what I'm most excited about is just continuing the journey and going on to working on a much larger scale. Wonderful. As you can probably tell, I'm also very excited about the, you know this kind of stuff. It's becoming more and more apparent to me that what really motivated me to get into teaching was the idea of supporting people to get better at learning. And I whilst I've, you know, loved so much about my teaching journey so far, I feel like I haven't had the opportunity to really dive right to the heart of what it means to teach someone and to me that is to help them to not need me at all. So as I look towards like next year for myself, I'm really interested in working with a school or a number of schools to try to work out how to do this. And, you know, we've talked a lot about conversations today and and what I'd love to do is to start a conversation with a school or a number of schools in my local area about this whole idea of learning skills. And I was wondering if there's people listening today who are interested in being part of that conversation, if you, James and Kate, or one of you, would also be interested in being part of that conversation to, to see what it might look like to get maybe a hub of schools doing this kind of thing potentially in Melbourne or even across Australia. I don't know. Does that does that sound like an interesting thing to you too? Of course it does. To me, I'm hoping James is going to say yes too. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. That's This is the whole plan. Yeah. Bring it on. All right. Well, I guess that's an open invitation, folks. So if you're listening to this, if you've liked the ideas and if you'd like to enter a bit of a conversation with James, Kate and myself about what this could look like in your local area, then please get in touch. I'll link to your emails in the show notes and I'll include my own email and and hopefully we can start a bit of a conversation maybe for 2021. Great. To close up, any calls to action Kate and James, anything you'd like teachers to go away today and do? Appreciate yourself. I think teachers do an amazing job and I'm not sure that anybody thanks them for it often enough. So I'm going to say thank you for doing what you do and to appreciate yourself a little bit more. And if you're thinking about doing something like this and you're not sure, if I could go back to myself 15 years ago, I would say, have the courage of your convictions, Kate, because it worked. But it took me 15 years of baby steps to get there. So if there are teachers out there who think, I've got this idea, I really think it'll work, but I don't say it out loud. Dare, say it out loud. Find someone who will listen to you. I will listen to you for sure and get going. So it doesn't have to take you 15 years of baby steps to get to the point that we are at now where we can write a book and go, yay, it worked, because it's a great feeling. All right. Well, James Mannion and Kate McAllister, thanks for your time today. In fact, these two days over which this podcast has been recorded, as you can t- you can see, you've got me really excited. James got me really excited several years ago. The book got me really excited and this podcast has got me really excited again. And I think more than ever, I can say that I look forward to hearing about your work in future and potentially even doing something together. So that'll be great. And thanks for your time today. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thanks so much much for having us. Yeah, thanks for everything. You've been great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with James Mannion and Kate McAllister. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of a link to John Cat Educational that you can use with the discount code ERRR30 on all books for 30% off 
or FEAR35 at checkout for a 35% discount on pre-order of James and Kate's Fear is the Mind Killer. And also a reminder that if you are a school leader looking to explore what a learning skills approach could look like at your school, please get in touch with myself through ollilovell.com or James and Kate at rethinkinged.org and we'd love to be part of the conversation as you start the journey and maybe even get involved too. Please share this episode with your friends and colleagues if you've got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the E2PLR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other E2PLR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time in listening today, or probably most likely over these last few days, given the length of this episode. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.